0: You may be busy doing something while you listen to this podcast. But you're never too busy to eat healthy if you eat Vite Ramen. This podcast is sponsored by Vite Ramen. Show support for a sponsor that supports Moore's Law is Dead at the link in the description. And if you do, make sure you use offer code BROKENSILICON. And you can also support Moore's Law is Dead if you need Windows keys or software at CDKeyOffer.com. If you go there, also use the code Broken Silicon for 25% off Windows keys or Shrink for 3% off everything else on the website. All right, now let's get on with the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And today I'm joined by somebody that actually, before I came up here to start recording, I was talking to my girlfriend and said, you know, this is someone that actually uh, saved me like two years ago. Um, I had a guest completely flake out last minute and I actually didn't look up the email, but to my memory, what I said to you was, hey, remember how we thought about recording in two weeks? What if we did that in two hours instead? (laughs) And you were just like, Hell yeah! Let's go. Let's do it. You know that that was. (laughs) I'm never going to forget that because it's happened before with another guest as well, and someone else jumped in. But the people that were actually, you know, just willing to jump into an in-depth conversation out of nowhere, I I do appreciate it quite a bit. But uh, an odd thing is that that was actually almost two years ago, and so I'm sure there's a lot of people that might not know who you are. or And I, I do recommend people go listen to that episode, too, because I think it's one of the better ones. But please, to all of the new people, introduce yourself, tell people what you do, um, what got you into this line of work, and just, like, you know, really what a senior tools engineer is. Yeah. So I'm Taylor Haddon. Uh, like Tom said, I'm a tools engineer.
1: Um, tools engineers are a, a unique breed in the game dev space. Uh, we sit between like generally so between the, the the artists and designers and the game engineers. We're sort of an intermediary layer. And so what we, we do is we make things that make it easier for designers and artists to put things in the game and make things work in the game. And uh, sometimes also make it easier for engineers to like profile things sometimes. So we play a whole, we can wear a whole bunch of different hats. Um, we can be doing stuff like managing builds on a for a company so that like we constantly have a build ready to go so that you can test it. We can be doing stuff like, oh, we're making this really cool environment art building system so that environment art can be uh, laid out more easily. Or we can be doing something really low level like, hey, I want to be able to edit this texture here and then have it show up in the game immediately. And mm-hmm. we're like, cool, we'll write the pipe, you know, Craft the pipe that makes all that actually happen as it, you know, gets transferred between different file formats, gets to the right place, gets into the engine in the appropriate location, and all of those sorts of things are stuff that I've, uh, I've touched on. So it's been, uh, it's, it's it can be really broad, um, which is, you know, can be a good thing and a bad thing. But uh, right now, I've been able to focus on some uh, a smaller subsection of that stuff, and uh, I'm finding a lot of joy in just diving into a specific thing.
0: So, um, and one thing I want to bring up too is, actually, I remember because if if we talked last late 2021, that would have been right after I went to a gaming conference in North Carolina. And while I was there, I, I actually met with people that are making, that made the new Dune video game. Um, I was and, just playing that. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what, a, <laughs> what a coincidence. But so I remember meeting with them and one person, she said, if I'm remembering correctly, I may be. It's a while ago, but she said, like she makes the skeletons for like people, or even just like the physics on the skeletons, and like anything involving an animal, that that's an entirely different person. And then yeah. someone else is animating it. Someone else is yeah. putting the textures and the stuff on it. Like, like I've heard, yeah. That the so Red she's a rigor, a rigor. That, that is what she's a rigger, what yeah. she called herself. Yes. So
1: yeah. Uh- Yeah, so just to understand that pipe, right, like you have the 3D character modeler that goes in and sculpts a face and the the, the torso and all that stuff, lays it out, makes it look beautiful, right, and then you hand it off to a rigger, and their job is to make sure all of the bones that are going to animate that mesh are in the right place, are connected to the right vertices, you have to make sure that they blend properly so that you don't get, you know, bends and seams, And then they also set up uh, control surfaces that make it easy to animate all those things,
0: Uh, Mm -hmm.
1: and then that gets handed off to the animation team. And that that, that's in a that's like you know in in a triple A space that's what's going on. If you're doing this in a more indie space, like you're going to have one person doing the whole thing because you have three artists, maybe if you're lucky, right? Like so, yeah. Well, Well, I'm glad I brought that 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 up because
0: that was perfect. I mean to give people an example of just how complex these games are, how many people do such specific things, but then also how you really do wear so many hats. You are immediately yeah, to able to come up with the name of that role and then tell me what they do. That's why I think you're such an interesting guest to have on because you really <laughs> can talk about anything that goes into game development and you just proved it. I mean, live. yeah, I need to know a little bit about all the things. And uh, I've, I think I've touched
1: nearly all of the things at this point. It's pretty wild. Uh, I'm, been, it's, it's totally a, a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none situation. Uh, the, the only thing I'm a master of is buttons, love buttons, very good at buttons, and what buttons do and how they get laid out. But everything else, I, I'm just like, oh, get to touch all the things.
0: I'm curious, like, so there's someone, I heard it for in the Red Dead Redemption team, they have just seven people working on the horse physics. Like, seven different people forges the physics for the horse, someone else handles the rabbits. Like, right. uh, I'm curious, like, all of this, I, I can just see it so easily. Like you're if you're one of these people focusing on what you need to do and getting that done, making sure it looks right, making sure if you place it, it looks correct. When it runs over 10 different types of terrain or 30 different types of terrain, like who makes sure it runs at a reasonable frame rate? Like is sure. there is there someone, or probably multiple people, in like a centralized role, maybe similar to you, but not doing the same stuff, but they touch everything and they go. This is colliding with this. This is taking too much, too many resources of this. If we actually make the, if we actually make this many dynamic ways a horse's leg can move, it's taking up too much VRAM. Who is there? Right. Someone that yeah, that totally. type of stuff. Yes,
1: yeah, so that's generally like a uh, like a lead engineer would be taking on that role. Um, so they they're looking over the technical aspects of the whole project. They're managing multiple sub teams within the engineering discipline. They would be like if in a classical uh, organization, they'd be like my boss, right? If I'm a senior tools engineer, tools engineering is underneath this this lead programmer. Um, so they're like they don't do a lot of engineering us- usually, and they're usually a little salty about it. Uh, Peter principal at work, right? Um, mm. But what they do do is like they're paying attention to those grand scheme budgets, like memory. Uh, uh performance bandwidth sort of usually it's it's like frame time and memory are the two ones that you're looking at the most um so for that right you d- you're going to be having some budgets for different aspects of the game sliced up right you're going to have okay we we have you know a couple milliseconds for rendering the terrain we've mm-hmm. got a couple milliseconds for doing pathfinding we've got a couple milliseconds for doing animations right? So so long as in a random scene whatever you're doing with the horses fits within that budget, no one's going to say boo, right? And uh, it's only when they get the little hot spot that you might have an issue.
0: Yeah, one game that comes to mind that is kind of a deep cut, but I bring it up because it was one that I liked at the time is this game called Mag that had 256 players on a console with I believe half a gig of RAM total. And I imagine that person it was it was a lot of long nights making sure that you can fit and there were three different teams too fighting in these 256 player battles um and they even had one type of battle which was 96 player that had all three teams so that's assets for 40 different guns for three different teams for all their different vehicle types all their different outfits you could customize like and that they said there was this one assault rifle called the F2000, the FN2000, which is kind of a futuristic looking Belgian, gu- Belgian gun. And they were like, the reason actually, they said in an interview, that doesn't have the foregrip option is it just looked too complicated. And if we added a foregrip, we ran out of RAM if everyone were to equip it in the game at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you got
1: to think about that sort of thing. Um, when I was working uh, at Vicarious Visions, we worked with uh, Bungie on Destiny 2 for a little bit. And one of the things that, you were like i was working on the tool chain for building weapons and stuff like that and they had modeled every single component in that way so that they knew that they could handle like the worst case scenario of like 16 players or whatever it was Mm -hmm. having the largest thing possible on all of their weapons and it would be on budget right there's no way they're going to go over budget um and that sort of means that like in some situations you you are leaving something on the table but that's all in service of there never being something going wrong mm-hmm. um and that like being able to do that like their their engine was nuts on a number of levels um being able to do that is very challenging on many dimensions it's a challenging technical task and it, that that aspect also makes it challenging for developers to put stuff into the game, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it, it, it makes the, the workflow of, of making tools for it challenging when you have to be thinking about it, all these different components. Um, like, all of those rumors from back in the day about how Destiny's uh, tools like could take 12 hours to load a map are mm-hmm. real. Like, that was legit what was going on. Mm-hmm. And they, like, they mitigated some aspects of it, and uh, my team at VV was part of mitigating some stuff further so that we could get, you know, iterations of times that weren't insane. I think those those times were for loading an entire map, and one of the first things that was done was, like, okay, we're only going to load little tiny slices, right? That's pretty common. Um, but, and then slices of those slices, and, like, that, that like... Pretty much all big games need to do that, right? Otherwise, mm-hmm. you'd need absolutely monstrous development machines just to be able to hold everything in memory because you're talking about gigabytes of data, right?
0: And uh, well, so I actually think this is a good place then to transition into one of the first things I wanted to talk about is a lot of the one of the biggest pieces of consternation in debate and just hollow online really in the first half of this year was that. I remember late last year, a couple games came out that if you had an 8-gigabyte graphics card, you could still run the game on PC, but you're not running it 4K Ultra, and in fact, you may struggle with 1440p Ultra. And then everyone said, well, it's poorly optimized. And then another game came out, and then another, and then another, and then another. And then I remember you know, saying, all right, it's been like six in a row, guys. I think this is, this is now a trend. And I had yeah. on multiple developers, like one after the other, that all said, and I remember one of them did say this actually two years ago. Yeah, and a couple of years, you're going to need more RAM. And then a couple of years went by. And I, I just wonder, like, why do you think this surprised so many people? Because I remember in 2020, when the RTX 3080 came out with 10 gigabytes, at, in launch reviews, there were a couple of games where you had to turn down settings in 4K, and I'm like, oh, well, this is 10 gigabytes now. Yeah. What do you think's going to happen in a couple yeah. of years? So, I think
1: I've talked to the podcast as I've been listening to you guys talk about this for a little while. And this is so, to my mind, I think one of the big things that's going on is that for a really long time, for two generations, right, you had PC hardware that was way more ready for the task Mm -hmm. for, for gaming than what consoles had the tail end of the 360 PS3 generation, those consoles had 512 megabytes of memory total, right? The PS3 was split in half. So, like, by the end of that generation, anything you bought off the shelf was going to destroy it, demolish it. And then when the PS5 came out, PS5 had 8 gigs, and I think... PS4 had 8 gigs, you mean? Sorry, yes, PS4 had 8 gigs. I misspoke. And... Uh, you could only have seven, maybe. I think it was like seven, six. I think and at half launch it was possible. actually like
0: five and a half. They reserved a lot time. for
1: the UI, and so what does that mean? Okay, so like back of the napkin math, right? If you if if we know we're having issues with eight gigabytes of VRAM right now for games being made for a sixteen gigabyte unified memory architecture for the PS Five, right? You sort of like okay, so we're uh, Games are probably demanding maybe two-thirds of the memory going mm-hmm. to graphics, one-third for its CPU. It's close enough, right? But even then, so two-thirds of, you know, six and a half-ish, right? That's four-ish gigabytes, mm-hmm. right? So or you can cut it in half, and, and then it's even easier. And so, like, all the cards that are out back then, it's like, oh, it's, it's fine, it runs great. Like The PS4 came out, and all the enthusiast-level PC folks were like, no worries, Mm -hmm. keep on trucking. Everything just looks better now. Everything's utilizing the hardware we already had better. And that's just not what's happening anymore, right? Even though the RAM levels were... Doubled. It was like only doubled, and some people were like, "I would have liked more uh, video memory." Um, Double. Dads uh, always want
0: more. I had more. always want. Someone who worked yeah. at Infinity Ward said, ah, "I wish it was thirty-two, but 60. Sure. Yeah. Be. I mean, like,
1: if it was thirty-two gigabytes, like it would, that would be a that'd be a huge amount of video memory. You could do a lot of stuff with that much memory. You could do a lot of stuff with that much memory. Um. Anyway, so that's a it's a it's a big jump, and that means that now you're pushing the top pushing the top limit and we haven't been in a situation where we've been pushing the top limit for a really long time. So I think the culture just has been slow to accept that you like a card that you bought two years ago, isn't top of the line two years later, mm. right? Cause for a while you, that sort of worked out for you, you bought a, a, a good card. It would last you a long time. It would still keep on, you know, doing the thing, sliding all the sliders up all the way. And it would keep on trucking. You just can't do that now especially in this little awkward period i think in another generation or two it's going to be a bit better but we already have faster consoles coming down the pipe right Mm -hmm. we're not terribly far away from a ps6 right so we, we we can anticipate those things as getting better and better so in in that influx right pc hardware is going to get more expensive and it's going to be out of date faster it's going to be more like the early days Well, that I was around that much in the early days, but I certainly remember like needing to balance my budget of what performance I had. Like, okay, I'm going to tweak these things playing on medium to low to get my resolution working because I've got larger than average. I want 60 hertz over the things. That was part of the gaming culture for a really long time until you could just throw hardware at it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, until you had these consoles that, and you have to remember too, like, even though they had like eight gigabytes of RAM, which was a lot compared to half a gigabyte in the previous gen with the ps4 their cpus were very anemic and that meant well yeah so if this game targets 1080p30 then your pc with a cpu four times stronger can do 120 but now we have cpus also in the consoles that aren't weak and they actually have ssds especially on the ps5 side that's just to this day hard for a PC to match actually absolutely and and before it was like one thing or one thing and and I remember the PS360 gen their CPUs were very powerful for the time and then that's when everyone had to get a dual or a quad core just overnight you needed a quad core and single cores weren't cutting it right a similar thing's happening now except their CPU GPU amount of RAM and (laughs) their storage is faster than it was last gen yeah and so that's probably why it's extra awkward as well
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that CPU and storage difference, because like, the difference to the PS4 is like, oh, everything uses a hard drive now. It's like, oh, okay, well, we went from the very anemic streaming processing of a CD, or a DVD rather, or a yeah. Blu-ray disc, uh, to a hard drive that's a bit better. And now you're talking about something that's an order of magnitude and change above that. Right, it's a big difference. And so, like when Mark Cerny came on wh- way back in the day, showing off what the PS Five was going to be capable of doing with its storage system, he was talking about how their uh, their storage controller was capable of decompressing and manipulating the assets off these storage uh, chips. That was equivalent to like four or eight Zen two cores mm-hmm. just doing that task that's a lot of performance built into those little, and it's dedicated silicon, so it can be nice and small, dedicated to a, the specific task. Um Yeah, and that's why you're seeing all these issues, like uh, Ratchet & Clank has issues, like, like this hits the CPU really hard, or if you put that on the GPU, the GPU you get a performance it, then it hits hit. the GPU like crazy, like the GPU can, is capable of doing it, but now you're, you're losing headroom that was rendering pixels.
0: Well, so a question I have then is, you know, I don't think, any developer, I think, including you, that came on the show said, "Yeah, there's going to be an awkward period," and, and everyone said it. But I always said, "Well, don't, don't go out and buy a 16 core CPU and a 4090 right. now. When right. it happens, go buy the new thing
1: for sure." I mean, I, yeah, and I, I, had to stop myself from doing that. Like when I bought a new machine, was like, "Oh, I really want to get the really nice thing." I, was like, I don't, I don't need to do that. Like so I can save the three hundred dollars or whatever on each component to not get the top of the line and then spend that money later on uh, another upper mid range part and, you know, have a pretty good experience the whole time rather than having something that's not quite utilized and then not quite good enough. Right. That's that that, you don't want to be in that situation.
0: But my question is, do you think that this is going to be something that like kind of settles into everyone's head of like, Oh, this really is an awkward period. You know, because on the one hand I see most sales data suggesting that the, heavily discounted 16 gigabyte rdna2 cards are selling pretty well between four and five hundred dollars right now as people uh-huh. choose that over a more efficient eight or 12 gigabyte card because they're like right. i can see i need the ram and it, there also seems to be like nobody wants an eight gigabyte card over 300 dollars in general yeah but also the 4070 the 4070ti 4070 with only only 12 gigabytes is selling pretty well but i can't help but sit here and go there's already been a couple of games that have come out where you can't game in 1440p Ultra with 12 gigabytes. So do yeah. you think that this is something where people are going to have like learned their lesson? Or do you think in one or two years, it's going to happen all over again to 12 gigabytes and people will be surprised again? And it isn't until like 16 gigabytes or 24 gigabytes of standard in the mid-range that this s- issue seems to go away for an appreciable amount of time.
1: That's a good question. I think it depends on how long this generation goes, like this console generation. That's the backbone mm. of all of this sort of stuff. So if this generation keeps going for a while longer, and like the Pro levels or the, 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 the PS5 Pro and whatever the Xbox decides to do, if they decide to do anything, uh, if those come out and like I'm, they, they're going to make an impact, but are they going to make a really big impact on the install base for the consoles? You still need to target the lower level of the console, so you still have that base... You can hit that base on a PC. You're going to be in a comfortable position.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so if that continues along for a lot longer, we're going to get we're going to have some comfort, right? Uh, PC hardware is going to have a chance to get better and better and better. Everyone's going to get you know, upgrade cards mid cycle, and everyone's going to feel great. I think in that case, we might actually end up with surprise again in the net when like the next generation rolls around, and everyone's like, "Oh no, my cool top of the line stuff." doesn't do the thing anymore because everyone forgot basically right like how i I think for a lot of people that are complaining they just don't remember because they weren't there they weren't buying cards i think that's a under or or potentially underappreciated fact
0: Um, well because right we can say, will people learn their lesson. Is this going to happen again? But I, I'm i just now thinking, I mean, I could just make the argument, this is how things have worked forever, except for like six years, like from 2013 right. to 19, yeah. it, which is when a lot of people got into PC gaming. That is that gaming renaissance period where like graphics card sales went just completely crazy. I, you know, back pre-2010, it was common every two years of, you know, fears out. I need a new CPU for the AI, or oh, half life right. two is out. Like there, like that was a thing every couple of years. Like you would just go, you, even with an expensive product, you don't expect it to run everything maxed out two yeah. years after you got it.
1: And PC hardware was at an, like a crazy inflection point back then. It was just getting so much better year over year over year over year. And then by the time that cycled out, AMD dropped the ball. Intel just
0: was like coasting forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and 28 so, nanometer, we were stuck on 28 nanometer for like five years. So they, like they had to coast, right. They had to get good at coasting. Uh,
1: <laughs> so, and it, it ended up working out okay for them. And we got a period of time where because of the stagnation, everyone could get comfy. Um, yeah, I think we're clearly not in a moment of stagnation. Stuff's going hard in terms of, uh, how powerful things are getting. Whether or not that, like, it's obviously also getting really expensive to make top mm-hmm. level stuff, but this, the top level stuff is getting better and better and better at a really impressive rate. It's pretty cool. So, so because of that, so like if the, I just want to come back, cycle back to like answer the sort of the question, right? If the console generation is a little shorter, right? The pros have a big impact, and then the next a couple years later, we have uh, the actual next generation of hardware, right? And the GPU manufacturers aren't like totally able to like keep up and I like keep up in quotes right obviously, obviously they're much better than those consoles right now but what if what you want is 4k ultra 120 Hertz and the developers are putting out on console something that's like 1440p upscale to 4k at 30 or 40 Hertz mm-hmm. right that's a head a heavy game right if that's what's what you're getting out of a ps5, then you need really, really hard hardware to be able to pull off that kind of performance. Um, and I think I think developers are going to continue targeting uh, upscaled 4K. They're going to continue targeting 30, 40 hertz because it gets them really, really pretty pictures, right? Mm-hmm. That's con- like all it's just... A through line. Every, all, all developers are like, that looks amazing. That looks really good. All the artists really want to push visual, visual fidelity as hard as they can. Um, you want to push like animation as hard as you can, uh, animation sim as hard as you can. Um, and all of that's really expensive, right? As we get better and better, and you hit sort of, we're also think diminishing returns real hard. So to squeeze out that much more quality requires a lot of power. Uh, and and so yeah, I think we're going to keep hitting that thirty forty hertz level. I think th- the fact that we can hit forty hertz is actually really great. With that VR is an improvement,
0: ones. and I think all games should have like a you know variable refresh rate forty hertz mode on console because yeah. it honestly is quite noticeably better. I messed it's around. It's so much
1: it. better. That's what I played uh, God of War Ragnarok on. It was
0: awesome. Mm-hmm looked great
1: still felt nice and smooth it was really consistent
0: oh i played it on the 90 hertz mode so that tells (laughs) you like what i'm looking for but yeah i think well that that gets to a good question here zapito3 writes in and asks hey tom and taylor what's the next level of performance that you think game devs are going to shoot for high refresh with current graphics high resolution more technologies that i can't even imagine cheers and and I, i think there's actually two ways to answer that question right like because I th- I think a PlayStation 5 Pro is coming out late next year. Um, I believe it's going to have a CPU like 50% better, a GPU over twice as good. Probably, a, I think probably a slightly, well, eh, probably a similar uplift to what we saw from PS4 to PS4 Pro, which was actually, right. now that I think about it, I was minimizing it. But actually, I think it went from 1.8 to four teraflops and then it was eight teraflops of fp16 so actually it's a quite a large gpu performance uplift now that i think about it but like something like that for that console how do you think they try to market it do you think they just try to make everything 4k 60 do they market 120 hertz a a lot of big screen tvs do 120 hertz now yeah or do you and then in addition to that like what do you think the playstation 6 xbox whatever the next generation of xbox is what do you think those ones are going to target
1: yeah, so like I think there's a uh, there's like a two way of looking at that question, two ways of looking at that, and that's like how are the hardware manufacturers going to ju- try and justify it, and what are the game developers going to do with that power? So when you look at like the PS Four Pro was neat because you're going to play the same games that were going to run at 1080p, and you could you know quote unquote get 4K out of it, right? That mm-hmm. was the pitch. Um, and it was a pretty good pitch. Like I got one. <laughs> I wanted to play Horizon in a way and get yeah. all the pixels I possibly could. Um, so I feel like you're going to get a similar pitch out of the PS Five generation, where it's like, okay, so you you were playing the game at you know 1440p, uh, 1600p or whatever at 40 hertz. Now you can you know dial some of those things up. It's going to be a little more. I don't think it's going to have as obvious an impact because it's you're probably not going to have as many hard A or B choices. Mm-hmm. So our, we already have this sort of gradation in the middle right now on the PS5. I do think at the tail end of the generation, you're probably going to see the PS5 base mode and then better modes on the ps5 pro where like the like do you want better resolution or do you want better performance those might be locked to the ps5 pro like they were for the ps4 pro Mm -hmm. right so just because developers are going to be like we made the coolest looking game we possibly could and then tried to fit it on the ps5 right and so like with that headroom you can do this or you can do this um so I think that's probably, that'd be my guess. Cause that's what happened last generation. Mm-hmm. I'm um, noticing
0: you not mentioning 8k. And it's funny. I feel like two years ago, everyone was like, maybe they'll have an 8k mode for like the special version. But now I don't even think they'll bother with it. Even if it can do it, you know, yeah. at 60 Hertz.
1: I don't think 8k, 8k on a living room display is nearly pointless. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some very rich people that are like, no, I have a hundred inch display. I can see pixels. And I'm like okay <laughs> right I don't think that's I mean for one that's not a large market so yeah. are you are you gonna be selling like the Super pro to consoles? I don't, I don't think so like that's you, you, I think that market would be better served by like a obscenely expensive gaming PC running mm-hmm. as 6090 right um, so I, I don't think 8K has that many legs
0: to be honest. Mm-hmm. I don't
1: see the I don't see the point. I'm not going to so buy one. So you doubt one. it's
0: even a target for the PlayStation, let's say, 6 or next Xbox in, I don't know, let's say 2026, 2027. You think that even they might not market it much. I mean, I, I guess I don't know. It's hard to say because I guess that is three to four years from now. Yeah. Three to four years ago was 2019. That was right after RDNA 1 came out. So, like... But yeah, even back then, 4K was kind of becoming standard. I, I don't it know. Was it's hard, it's standard, hard to predict because yeah. you never know if like. And now, finally, 4K is kind of the it,
1: standard. It is standard, yeah. So I, yeah, so the PS4 came out in a like in a uh, funky point in the generation where we were jumping from 1080P to 4K, and it wasn't just that uh, everybody wanted a 4K set because it was better, even though it was better, it was that TV manufacturers stopped making 1080p panels. Yeah. Right? you buy a TV now, it's 4K, unless you went out of your way to
0: find a 1080p (laughs) one, (laughs) right? Well, but people need to remember, too, when you make a monitor, or especially a TV, especially a smart TV, which everyone typically wants the ability to press a button and turn on Netflix without having to plug in a console or something, like, the stand costs money, the panel costs money on its own. Like, every... like going once 4k is the most mass manufactured panel going from that to 1080p once you subtract the cost of the power supply and everything yeah. else in the panel it actually isn't that much cheaper to make so they might as well right. just make 4k exactly
1: and it is it is better like you can tell the difference from a reasonable viewing it, or a reasonable sitting distance right on like a 60 inch panel 65 inch
0: panel. But, but you're getting to a good point though because you're like 4k is becoming mainstream it is it is mainstream now yeah. Because it's the option. 8K right. is even harder to tell the difference between. Yeah. It's probably not going... It might be by PlayStation 7 or something, but right. if that happens, it's because that's the only one they're making, probably. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. I think I think the, the big thing that
1: happened in the past couple of years was the transition to 120 hertz, right? HDMI 2.1 came out. We have all these awesome LG OLED displays that look amazing and are awesome to game on. Like, the, the LG OLEDs have become like the standard TV nearly, right? If you like, you want a nice TV, get that one of the CXs, right? Um, And all other, all the manufacturers are like trying to hit one or more of those, those specs. So because of that, like we have now, instead of spending the uh, HDMI 2.1 bandwidth on 8K, we can spend it on 4K 120, right? That's so much better for gaming Right. That's such a better improvement to your experience because of the reduced latency, because of the smoothness. I love it. I don't see that being made better by 8K. No, this is more pixels to drive like you're not going to see it. You are. We are are already gaming on, on in the living room at 4K when it's actually 1440p upscaled. And a lot of people barely can tell the difference. What's the point of 8K?
0: yeah and and so that i think that we've just answered the question too like what would a playstation 5 pro or xbox series elite target i would say well right now they're doing basically 1600p60 with a full 4k 40 to 30 hertz mode as an option so if you were to give me something 2.5 times better in graphics and 50 percent better in cpu i'd go well, if you unlock, for example, God of War Ragnarok, it tends to run around 80 hertz. Right, so a 50% better CPU. Now we're probably at 120, double the right. graphics performance. That's probably going to be the selling point is it's almost the dynamic resolution is almost always right next to 4K, and it's almost always at 120, and that will be noticeable over... Right. Well, and maybe a, some extra ray tracing turned on or something yeah, right. that, that will be far more noticeable than pushing to 8K or probably honestly pushing I don't think they're going to, I think on console they're going to gravitate towards 120 hertz more and more. I do not think they're going for anything above that anytime soon just because that's such a convenient target that like every big screen display seems to support there'd it'd be absolutely no purpose in supporting like even 144 hertz. really.
1: Well you also have to think about like there aren't panels that do that I think samsung makes some 4k 144 hertz panels maybe mm-hmm. um but like you, there aren't cables that want to do that like well like no, there
0: are but they're right. not mainstream and not in exactly. big screen tvs
1: exactly like you, you there's you need to look at what the addressable market is and it's like so close to zero <laughs> where you're talking about uh going above 120 at least when it comes to like tvs in living rooms like obviously PC gaming is a completely different beast in that in that uh, regard. But, I don't know. I don't expect a lot of people are using their PS5s to play on a gaming monitor. Mm-hmm. There's some people doing that, but I doubt it's the majority.
0: My brother was as long as he was, you know, working uh, on his uh, in grad school. But that's because he lived in an apartment and he just right. never had the money or time to... Which I remember those days in college where no, my monitor was my TV. At my 100%. Desk. I've been there. <laughs> but... I don't know. We're we're
1: uh, video game nerds. We're we're different. We're a different beast. Yeah. <laughs> also, we,
0: no, but you're right too. Like, I went to an engineering college, so like, yeah, that's probably what engineers were doing, not what anyone else right. was doing.
1: Yeah, most people are like, I have a laptop, and then I have a television. I think that's mm-hmm. the the standard. If you're a tech, like a light tech
0: enthusiast, right? It, this is such a deep cut and a dumb thing to bring up, but I remember when I was like in middle school or high school, I had a laptop that had an Remember, so this is a long time ago. It actually had a 1080p display, and, it, and back then it had an 18.5 inch screen. So I was like, nice "Wow, this is a nicer la- uh, screen than." Well, probably any other screen in the house i'm like (laughs) let me plug in uh, the ps3 or our dvd player and i was like why can't i just do that and that like led to so much of this like being obsessed with hardware is realizing yeah no you can't just plug it into the hdmi (laughs) you know high school tom and expect it to just send the signal either way actually that is not (laughs) how this works that's Um, fantastic that's great getting out and enjoying the weather or is it too hot to get outside well, either way, whether you're looking for an easy meal on the go or something quick and delicious while you're cooped up inside, Vite Ramen has you covered. This piece of content is brought to you by Vite Ramen. Bite Ramen is a healthy, tasty, and shelf-stable food crafted by an American startup that offers tons of options for eating healthy. Their classic packages make it easy to add protein and other ingredients of your choice, including new flavors like Radiant Crab Ryu. and also their Ramen Go packages offer a healthy microwavable option for those who truly only have a 15-minute lunch break away from home. Or they even have other healthy products like Nano Boost Powder that makes any food at least a little healthy click on the link in the description and use the offer code broken silicon to save 10% on a variety of products including special bundles for Moore's Law's Dead fans raw nudes if you want to make up your own recipes and other food products powders cooking utensils and more they are a plucky small but rapidly growing company that has been good to Moore's Law is Dead for years so you know supporting them helps support me and even just clicking on the link below makes a big difference for Moore's Law is Dead but I really do really like their products, and I recommend you try them as well. So check out Vite Ramen today. Really? Going not keep the glasses on for more than a minute? Per Liegman writes in and says, To what extent do you feel that the trend over the last decade of emph- emphasizing high frame rates above 60 FPS has posed challenges for developers in expanding the level of detail in game art in terms of geometry, shaders. Like, would games be more detailed in the PC market if developers felt they could target 30 or even 60 hertz as often as they do on consoles and people were just happily accepting those frame rates? Or is this less of an issue than people think? I think it's less of an issue.
1: Like, if you want high frame rates, you always have the option to turn down settings and get there on PC. Um And then, like we've talked about with consoles, uh, people keep on making those trade-offs that push them down, away from 60 hertz, towards 40 and 30, because you get double the frame time to play with and do cool stuff with. Um, so, since a huge portion of the market is consoles, you're always working from that base of, of performance. So, PCs historically have been an afterthought, not like uh, it's been a larger and larger and more important part of the market for sure, Mm -hmm. but historically it's been, make sure that we're shipping on PS3, Xbox 360, make sure we're shipping on PS4, make sure that's good, and then what can we do in the PC?
0: Mm -hmm. And,
1: you know, that's the sort of a reality of production. Like all production, nearly all production is done on PCs because, you know, it's a lot easier than, and a lot cheaper. That's the workstation. To get it. It's yeah. the workstation. Yeah, um, so it's generally not a question of like compatibility. It's a question of how much effort can we afford to? Are we going to? Choose, how much money are we going to burn on making the best possible PC or mm-hmm. PC version? And some developers don't have the expertise. I know there's some people that are like very much focused on like console development. A lot of Sony's teams are like completely within that environment like the games don't even boot in, on a PC they or they don't work or operate without a controller uh, that that level of stuff but that's le- that's much less common outside of like the Sony space mm-hmm. Um a lot of people are using Unreal, a lot of people, fewer people on consoles use Unity, but Unity's also a big part of game development. All of those things run completely natively on a PC and you, you can have all the inputs that you want. So when it comes to making a good PC port, it's just a, usually just a question of like, how much effort do we want to invest into this? Mm-hmm. And because we have that baseline of what, what a console is gonna be doing, what's, what you can push on top of that You have to look at the marginal cost. Because most PC gamers aren't enthusiasts. They're not Mm -hmm. running the top-end hardware. So spending. PC gaming
0: really isn't that niche anymore. It's become fairly commonplace. A lot of people have them now.
1: A lot of people have them. But a lot of people, it's not that it's not a large number of people that have 4080s. 3090s, 3080s, like that's... that's Nor still-
0: people who are overclocking them and even remember what components they have after they built it a month later. Like a lot of my friends exactly. ask me for advice, build it, and then they will email me a year later. Hey, what graphics card do I have again? Like they right. don't even remember, you know. And yeah. some reason, I remember. I remember right, what all like- of them have for five years. I don't know why. <laughs> exactly.
1: So, so like
0: Steam Hardware Survey, right, is actually a useful
1: resource there because you can look at what the addressable market has what's the what what does what do most PC gamers have for for a really long time they had 1060s now they have 3060s right that's most PC gamers that's what they end up with their box or the components that end up inside their box so when you look at that from a game development perspective it's like okay do we want to spend a lot more money making mm-hmm. the graphics be able to scale up a lot more so that the
0: you know, right, thousand, you might as well target 60 people. hertz, you're saying, and you might as well target that level of graphical performance, I mean, uh, quality, instead of targeting 30 hertz, because at 30 hertz, it can't even fit in these mid-range graphics cards anyways. So we might as well target this level of quality at 60 and let the faster cards run it at higher frame rates, because yeah. you don't even have the VRAM to fit it sure in like sure. an 8k frame in this anyway so
1: well yeah there's there's two elements to performance right there's the memory and then there's the compute so both of those things are happening so if you if you can push higher assets and you know there are back in the day right you had the hd texture downloads right
0: mm-hmm. uh
1: for the people that had the four gigabyte cards and
0: the three gigabyte uh, skyrim uh exactly. textures, you know
1: yeah so sometimes it happens um I think in cases like this like right right now it's not going to happen because the delta between what the consoles are shipping and and what the PCs could take advantage of isn't that large. Mm -hmm. I think there's a question here about Starfield which is like the notable exception that it's not well, uh, let me ask it. and yeah, Biscuit
0: it. writes in and says, "Hi, Tom and Taylor. Hardware and Box recently uploaded a video covering Starfield GPU setting optimizations. In this video, they say that Starfield would typically utilize about eight gigabytes of VRAM." Uh, And that goes for even if you're testing it on a 4090. It rarely went above 8 gigabytes. Is this Bethesda's attempt at Starfield trying to remain compatible with 8-gigabyte GPUs at the cost of needing to swap resources more frequently between GPUs and RAM? And if true, is this exposing memory bandwidth limitations in Ryzen processors that use Infinity Cache and maybe get overloaded? Well, actually, I didn't even think of this before we started recording, but I'm just going to suggest Starfield's one of those 10-year development cycle games. So maybe it's not using more than 8 gigabytes of RAM because it was designed back then.
1: I'll tell you exactly what the thing is. It's the Xbox Series S, um, which has way less memory uh, available for it. So they needed to fit the game on that. So Mm -hmm. that's a a huge number of decisions went in to make it so that it could fit into that. I don't have insider information on this. That just seems like the most likely scenario. The fact that it also fits into a, a, you know, a, 3070 or whatever great win everyone's happy i don't think that they were like oh we need to have this fit into eight gigabyte graphics cards they were thinking we need to make sure this fits on the xbox series s
0: and this game was announced in 2018 and it was already under development so yeah at a minimum this game took six years to make and it probably took seven or eight you know so if you think about when that game would have started, but it's a lot larger game, so it took longer to finish, you should really be... I still consider, too, you should be comparing this to the games that came out with four-year development times, and those didn't have these VRM issues e- either. And they would have been targeting not just the Series S, they probably would have been developing this next to Xbox One and PlayStation 4 dev kits, too. So That's a strong
1: possibility. There's you know, rumors that you hear that... Uh, like one of the reasons that Bethesda was snapped up with a, uh, the aggression that it was was because they heard that Sony was going to buy exclusively, yeah, right? And they were like, nope, nope, can't have that happen. We're going to do it first, and we're going to do it harder. Uh, I'm not going to condone such behavior, <laughs> but I wouldn't condone it in the other direction. I was going to
0: say we'd we'd be yeah. here all day if we were pointing at what one or one other side does um, exactly.
1: So. You, you can probably make a really strong argument that PS5 was the target SKU until the Microsoft deal went all the mm-hmm. way through, right? The, the base SKU. And then they still ha- they were still working on the Xbox versions, of course. Mm-hmm. But the Xbox has sold 50% maybe of what the ps 5s done. Um, well, a lot
0: of these games are built on all of them and then the deal happens that puts it on one platform. Yeah. Like, I sure, remember... Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. There was a leak years ago that showed gears of war three running on a ps3 and that's because they wanted to put it on the ps3 and then microsoft was like no yeah <laughs> like and so yeah the, the usually they are built to run on everything and then it's funneled towards a platform i i think right too like that's very common. I think it's pretty common now yeah. i mean especially Unless it's when, like naughty dog then we know
1: what they exactly do right. Right. if it's, it's, it's first-party studio that's it's obvious but so much development happens on uh, you know third party engines like unreal that can just do whatever so long as you have the hard, like the, the development hardware to compile towards it so and then even that like a lot of third parties jump back and forth they know what they're doing they're capable of running on either capable of compiling towards either
0: mm-hmm. um, yeah. well so i think this dovetails good in well into this question by oh boy i don't know if i'm going to be able to say this name non trung min that's my guess. He says, Ohio Thompson and taylor how does a studio or developer pick the minimum target cutoff point for a game? As a game? As game requirements go up, more people on the lower end have to be cut off eventually from playing. But at the same time, if you're a developer, I'm sure you don't want to alienate a massive part of your audience. But they clearly do eventually because, well, I can't play Starfield with a GT 710. So clearly a decision was made as some minimum point game development then takes three to six years these days and a lot can change in that three to six or even more years how and when does a studio predict and pick the minimum specs and would a studio go back and retroactively fix a game if the future hardware prediction turns out to have been a bad bet
1: yeah i think it's a fun question so we talked we mentioned uh, steam hardware survey survey a little while ago that's a important point of information just knowing what hardware is out there um, and that can that can make an impact and I think that makes an impact on how hard a developer tries to be able to crunch something down um, if you know that there's a large market of people that have a 1060 for example mm-hmm. you're going to try harder to make things run okay on the 1060. Uh, as that market diminishes, you're going to stop trying. So if if you have uh, if you still have like forty percent of the market on that level of performance, you're like we need to hit this level of performance in order to you know so that we're not slicing ourselves uh, at the hip, trying and, and cutting ourselves off from that market. Um, I think when you're looking at this from what do we target now when we're looking at the beginnings of a six to seven dev cycle or a seven year dev cycle that's really different
0: mm-hmm. um that, it, that's the question i kind of am more interested in yeah like like how do they do that and how do they pick that minimum point because i think there are some games where you look at them and it's like well clearly they just and i've heard develop, some developers tell me this they're like we know this game's going to take five years to make So we just targeted the 2080 ti and we were hoping that would be mid-range in five years you know yeah there's a couple of fun stories i think that pertain to that directly
1: um uh star citizen is one of those right when the first uh screenshots and, and and gameplay footage came out from star citizen people were like whoa that looks wild right and for a really long time you needed an absolute beast of a system in order to run it right you needed that 2080 that you needed a really high powered cpu you needed an ssd um all of those things are becoming more and more common right it's no it's still a very heavy game but it's no longer in a class of its own like when it first initially started uh, coming out in a playable quote-unquote state um and that's because they looked way ahead. We're like, we're going to be working on this game for a decade. <laughs> mm. um, so we need, We were going to try and hit way up here so that by the time we
0: finish it, that's still good. Right? I assume it will probably, be finished someday. Uh, yeah, no, that's allegedly. Probably, yeah, allegedly, allegedly finished.
1: Um, so I think that worked out well for them. It meant that they could do some things that like, you're like, we're just not going to bother trying to support... Anything lower mm-hmm. than X, so we're going to do all these fun things. We can get a much higher level of detail. We can do cool things with lighting.
0: To be fair, though, most games don't have that kind of development funding cycle. <laughs> you no know. You, uh, they're right. maybe the only dev that could even get away with that.
1: Yeah, because they're crowdfunded. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, I think a good example of this is Watchdogs. Mm. So watchdogs was notorious from the the, the watchdogs downgrade from the initial uh e3 footage to what actually showed up right um it it was disappointing and very understandably so and you have to understand like when it was initially showed off it was running right but it was, you know, that small section of, of environment was running and it was running on PC hardware and it was running on PC hardware that was better than what the consoles ended up being. Mm-hmm. right? So, basically, Ubisoft was saying, we think we can hit this, this thing, this is what the consoles were going to do probably and they were a little off. And because they were a little off, they, were, they had to make some pretty rough cuts to the presentation of that game. And it, it turned out
0: Unfortunate. um You want to know something and, else funny I heard about that one? What, what? So it looked cool, but it's almost like it almost, if you look it up, looked like one of those GTA Five realism mods. Honestly, is what it looked like to me. Those mods look cool, but it's hard to see enemies when it's raining and it's dark. And what I also heard is in play testing, they're like, no one can see them. Like, That's like it looks photorealistic, but in real life, you can smell, hear squint see something in a game (laughs) they couldn't see the enemy so we kind of had to dumb down the graphics in that section that's interesting so you could see um and i've heard actually about that in a lot of different games as well like like uh, an example where it turned out well was killzone 2 where they showed off this demo the final one looked i'd say arguably as good but like some of the effects looked worse, the lighting looked worse, but the facial animations looked so much better than the sure. demo they showed off that looked like PS... It looked like PS4 faces with PS2 facial movements. It looked way worse. right? And right. it's like, they t- they roughly hit what they wanted, but they also changed it because they just thought it looked goofy too.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that visibility question is really interesting. I had, like, hadn't really considered it, but I've definitely encountered that where because the environment is so well made, it's so so dense with visual detail, you sort of get lost. It's like you mm-hmm. don't have, you can't focus on a thing, you walk in, I, I noticed this in particular in uh, what was the, the first Frostbite game? Uh, 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 not Frostbite, I'm sorry, uh, Snowdrop. Uh, so that would have been The Division, yeah. right? You walk, you're walking around to these apartments you're looking for like tin cans and stuff but you can't see the tin cans because there's garbage everywhere you yeah. can't find the garbage in the garbage uh, and then that's that kind of a thing I found it like visually overwhelming almost playing that game for, for a bit just because there was so much density you didn't know what was important
0: Well, actually, you know, I actually think this is a good question to ask next. So QH Freddy writes in, and he asks, can you describe how optimization takes place during different phases of game development? Is it something often done from the ground up and then honed to the whole time? Or is it usually done later? Or or like, are there just stages where we just sit down and optimize everything and then keep making more of the game? How do developers approach this? How do engine developers approach this? so i've seen all
1: three of those different scenarios um yeah so it it really depends on the culture um some studios are like really really rigorous about performance and they keep a lid on it the whole time some studios don't worry about that so much uh and they're like we're going to fix it later we're going to fix it later we're going to fix it later and then they maybe can fix it later um and sometimes I think I think that the, the the last one is probably the most common, where you have these uh, these de- like micro dev cycles, right? And so you say, okay, we're gonna work for this next two, three, four months. We're gonna reach this milestone. At the end of this milestone, it's not going out to players, right? It's going up to higher ups to get continued approval, continued funding, et cetera. And at that point, you're like, okay, let's we gotta make it work. We gotta make this thing that we just spent the last couple of months on run at a reasonable frame rate or representative frame rate Um, i think that one's probably the most common there's a a lot of different game studios out there i've only seen the insides of a handful Um, Mm -hmm. but that one's that one's pretty common and i think like where they're like at set
0: set points making sure it's working and then at the end there's polish
1: exactly exactly yeah
0: do you and and um and obviously the way they do it matters for their own culture how many people they have on staff that they can even afford to do it so but like what do you think typically works best though like when you have someone ruling with an iron fist the whole time because i think that's kind of how naughty dog does it like just there's a guy they're always telling you no or yes yeah. for everything you add in but then there's studios where i think clearly they just have breaks where they make sure it works like and then i think there are some games that have come out that i suspect they maybe weren't doing it as often and then it doesn't look good for the amount of performance they have.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think so. A lot of the Sony studios have that culture of iron fist, right? Not I don't know about Night Dog, uh, but uh, Sony Santa Monica—they're definitely mm. pretty stringent about it. Um, in. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Spider-Man studio, uh, (laughs)
0: Insomniac,
1: Insomniac. there we go. So yeah, Insomniac, they're, they're pretty hardcore about it. Uh, they've got some really excellent engineers at the top level that really push on that stuff. And you, I mean, you can tell, right, those games stand amongst, stand out amongst all other games in terms of their visual fidelity to performance ratios. Right, like that's on a similar level to the Doom games on PC. Doom runs really well Mm -hmm. and it looks really good. And most games don't get close to that performance to visual fidelity ratio. But like those Sony games, they're getting darn close. They're Mm -hmm. very, if not if not better or equivalent. Um, And so I don't know what the inside of ID looks like. I expect they're probably paying attention to that a lot right that's sort of what they do is make really excellent game engines really excellent rendering engines um so i think you do that if or or an environment like that Mm -hmm. happens when you have engineers that are really good at what they do and have the political clout within the company to throw their weight around Mm -hmm. right and so those companies have a long history of doing that and being really successful you doing it. I was
0: going to say if they've become well known as Gorilla or Naughty yeah. Dog or for a while there I would say you know um, Dice, it's like the sure. reason they're allowed to do that is because they've gotten a lot of credibility and they've gotten clout and political yeah. capital in their circles and so people listen to them and then if it's a studio that's never really had that history you can see how maybe that culture wouldn't even develop in the first place
1: right when you have the, like the an engineer of 5 or whatever in a small studio saying hey we really should get performance to be, be good right and you know you have some other folks that are like it's it's running fine i think Right, and you like, yeah, and he's like, yeah, you've got
0: two thirty nineties. Of course, it's running fine. What about exactly? Right, like
1: you, you can like, you can let that sort of run away from you if you're not careful about
0: it. Um,
1: yeah, you can definitely get into, into some trouble if you're making you're developing a game and you're like on your cool awesome development box. Like it's running thirty hertz. It's perfect. You're like, mm-hmm. well, we have we run this on target hardware yet? We might want to check. We might want to see what's happening. Well, and you can. And so that's people, what happened in Cyberpunk. Yeah. Right. They, they they were running on their PCs, looks awesome on PC, ship in a pretty decent state on PC, and then you start trying to make that run on lesser hardware, and it just fell apart.
0: Mm-hmm. Just, they just well, and you can see it. how you'd get used to it, too, because yeah. one of my favorite stories I also heard from like Killzone 2 development is Killzone 3 had really low latency, and they were like, well, I thought that was a gameplay choice to make Killzone 2 feel heavy, and it's like, most of the heavy feeling is just visually on screen. No, we just didn't notice the latency because we got good at playing the game with input lag.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And low level stuff can make a huge difference, especially with like with shooters. Like, um, what's it in in Bungie? People don't want to touch the core shooting code because it's been in there for forever. It's been in there since halo. Some of it's been in there since marathon. Um, it works really well. It's made them tons and tons of money. They don't want to touch it. They're not mm-hmm. going to touch it. And like Infinity War did experiments with trying to make Call of Duty and Unreal because they spent oh, yeah. millions and millions of dollars on engine improvements. And I think their stuff is uh Quake based Quake Four mm-hmm. based, I think. And um, they just couldn't get shooting to be as good. They mm-hmm. just it couldn't. We couldn't reach the same level. So they're like, nope. we're we're not sure exactly how we could fix this. It's, you know, Unreal's a big engine. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. It's not something that you can just, you know, change the order of a loop and now shooting works better. Um, It's just going to, like, when you're focusing on very minute differences, it's like you can have very fundamental differences between two engines at that low level just because of decisions made a long, long, long time ago.
0: Well, so all right i want to pivot into a conversation here though about like the hardware required for the actual performance um and this is something that's kind of popped up as a concept on broken silicon between especially me and my co-host and in the news episodes regularly for the past year Um, and it seems like it might actually happen is that instead of just going balls to the walls designing the strongest thing you can scaling it down some, but it's still expensive. It does seem like next-gen AMD is targeting actually trying to maximize price performance in the mid-range, unlike what clearly has happened this generation with NVIDIA. And and that was pretty successful for AMD in prior generations when they did that. So I want to ask you, would you prefer next-gen, just as a hypothetical, to have a generation where... The RTX 5090 is double the performance of the 4090 and it's two grand. And then maybe the 5080s, I don't know, you know, 1400, the 5070s, 800, 900. Or would you prefer the 5090 to be barely stronger than the 4090, but the 5070 is $600 and better than a 4080? Like, which one would. You'd be more interested in because i could even argue having a crazy 59 would make it easier to develop the game though you know
1: yeah so i think what i want and what the market at large wants or what would be best for the market at large are kind of different
0: ever get exhausted looking for a safe way to pay reasonable pricing for microsoft software amongst tons of questionable listings on ebay and shady websites Well, now you don't have to do this any longer, not if you go to cdkeyoffer.com. This piece of content is brought to you by cdkeyoffer.com and their back-to-school sale. Whether it's Microsoft operating systems, Office products, or even many of the latest AAA games, cdkeyoffer.com provides PC gamers with a product that I honestly think this community does need. In a world where far too many of our components that make up our PCs are getting more expensive every year the last thing we need is monopolistically priced software to remain on that list of stupid stuff we pay too much for and you know the moore's law is dead team has been working with cdkeyoffer.com for many years for a reason they've been good to me they've been good to dan they've been good to family members that use their website when they build a pc and they've been good to the moore's law is dead community as well so whether you're looking for steam ea Uplay, play or playstation keys or of course Microsoft products. Support Moore's Laws Dead by using the code broken silicon for twenty-five percent off all Microsoft products or die shrink for three percent off everything else. Support us at cdkeyoffer.com today.
1: I'm I'm an enthusiast level uh person who plays games. I'm a developer. Gosh, I would love a fifty ninety that was twice as good as a forty ninety.
0: Oh my mm-hmm. gosh. That'd be amazing. I mean performance uh, would be a wouldn't even be a factor while you're working like you just right, I, that I, later It'd be fine Every, everything would be fine like
1: uh, Unreal can run slow for no apparently good reason when you're doing development work um, and if you just have that much more perf to throw at it you don't have to worry about it it's excellent. I would want that for my games i like games to look really excellent i like the i like things to be smooth as butter i like things to you know, throw all the settings to max throw it up on a 4k 120 hertz screen it's like oh yeah this is silky i love that stuff but i don't want to like i i'm willing to but i don't want to spend two grand on such a component right mm-hmm. um and for the market at large i don't that's not what the market at large needs the market at large wants the 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 rising tide to lift all ships because right now we just have like really big ships standing up really tall getting stuff that is barely trickling down it's, it feels like and if we have a generation where that doesn't shift much but this comes up a lot that's going to be great for everybody mm-hmm. um that's gonna like it's gonna make a certain tier of performance more accessible which is excellent that's just good and it also means that developers when they're looking at the market can be like, oh, we have a larger segment of the population with more performance. That means that we can target that level of performance in a particular way. And that means, uh, again, either games are going to look better, games are going to scale into that performance better, or it means that games are going to look as good as they were going to, but we're all going to have better performance while running those games. So Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's probably the, the, a good thing if the, if we don't, if the top end of the market can sort of chill out for a bit and the, the, the mid and bottom end comes back, comes back up to match the, the market conditions currently are totally wild. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that the 4090 is like the most compelling value proposition. <laughs> I know. The well, stats. the more you it's buy, like, the more you save. Exactly. The more you buy, the more you save. And like, that's, that was never the case right you you look at the Titans back in the day you were you were paying like double for like what 20 30 percent more performance mm-hmm. um going from the, the the 70 to the 80 clash is like
0: uh, it doesn't really feel worth it like it's you're paying like 30 percent more for 20 percent more and then exactly the time, like I don't know 50 to 80 percent more for 40 percent more like it just it's it's supposed to be like A curve like this performance and right now it actually feels like it's the other way yeah it's just bonkers um so
1: i feel like getting back to that curve makes sense i think it it allocates resources in a better way like like if from a really high level perspective if you have like this really expensive silicon uh Mm it's really hard to produce does really crazy stuff then why not make that like more expensive than necessary Pushing people further down in the market makes the market a little healthier because the big chunk of people close on the on the lower end of that slope is a little more regular. I, I think that the outcome of this particular generation is just going to be weird. I mean, the fact that no one sold it, like, or sorry, the fact that no one's buying the current uh, NVIDIA generation, with the exception of oh, the, the forty ninety, yeah. is going to be weird. Like the Steam Hardware Survey, you know. Further out, he's like, "Oh, well, there's this weird blip of really good performance for the era, and then nothing." Right? That's what it's going to look like. Um,
0: well, yeah, and I think a theory that I genuinely have. Well, it's, I think it's two factors why Nvidia did this. Uh, the first reason I believe is that they make so much more money selling an RTX six thousand at five grand instead of a even a Titan at three grand that. <laughs> They just don't see the point if gaming becomes a smaller and smaller part of their revenue, and yeah. it is. I do think there's another factor here where you see AMD like the 7900 XTX, the 4090 is a 20 percent bigger die than that, and it's all for an nanometer, or I guess and like really a tweaked n five. uh And AMD is meanwhile almost using half six nanometers. So there's like an attempt on AMD's side to use chiplets to make it cheaper. Whereas on the NVIDIA side, at least from what I hear, it's pretty much all monolithic, probably for at least another gen. And that means three, I think three nanometers, is like 20 grand a wafer, you know? And so there's a there's probably a thing here where I think they're like, we're making the 4090 more tempting than it should be because we want to get people used to a $1,200 80. We don't want them to think it should cost 700. We need to, because my understanding is it costs $900 to $1,000 to make a 4090. Wow. So. I mean, it's still 60% markup, but I think it costs like... That's an expensive component. I think it costs like 700 bucks to make a 4080, so they're making like double the margin on that. But they're doing that temporarily, even if it looks bad, I believe, because they're like, yeah, but once that's on three nanometer, now the 5080 costs as much to make as the 4090 did. We need to get them used to this price point, you know, especially once ridicule limits happen, where I've heard two nanometer, will have a ridicule limit around 400 millimeters squared, which means... They may be selling the fifty ninety with you know, like they may have a limitation that pushes them in that direction as right, well. Right, you can't make a way for that big. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. So, like we once we passed like f- seven, I think, is when we stopped getting, it stopped being just gravy, dropping down and going to a smaller and smaller process. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, like you drop down a process, everything that works in the the upper process is like still works still awesome just faster less energy Mm -hmm. and we're not we're we're way past that point now where like you have to worry about quantum tunneling of electrons you have to worry about all this crazy stuff at this low 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 very small level um you have like what the the reason that amd is using uh chips on, on a higher level is because some of those processes just don't scale down in a useful way, right? That's why the IO the memory
0: controller portion really does. Exactly.
1: Like, there's no benefit to making it smaller um, because you can't. Like, you you physically can't do it. It would just be taking up more space, or a similar amount of space on a much more expensive piece of silicon. So just just don't. You don't want to do that. That's, like, Mm -hmm. the point of chiplets. um, Or half the point at least. And... Yeah. So like Moore's law is dead. We're, we're running like face long into this wall of we can keep shrinking, but the benefits of shrinking are mm-hmm. becoming smaller and smaller, right? Logic, it's becoming much more expensive per, per, per transistor. Like that, that, that cost per transistor is no longer nosediving. It's starting to plateau and creep up again a little or at least or in terms of transistors per, per millimeter, right? It's it's no mm-hmm. longer going down.
0: It's no longer like the actual transistor, though smaller is actually cheaper. It's smaller, it's better, but it is yeah. not cheaper not per cheaper. transistor Exactly, anymore.
1: yeah. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say.
0: Um, How much of that do you think has thrown devs through a loop, though? Because I remember my original... Lovelace leak, which was really based on the NVIDIA hack where we just knew basically most of the specs, but then also informed by what other people were telling me around NVIDIA. And I remember going, yeah, so I think the 104 die, the cut down one will be used for like the 40, 60. And I remember thinking that 12 gigabyte die was going to be used for the 4060 no the 107 die was the one that i predicted would be for the 4050 and i'm wondering just how much of that's affected the wonkiness too in performance like i can't help but imagine developers looked at what's coming down and they said oh well good so the low end's gonna have 12 12- i mean the 3060 had 12 gigabytes of ram they're like right 12 gigabytes gonna be low end 16 is going to be high end ish and 24 is going to be enthusiast. And then this generation came out, and that is at least on, it's kind of happened on the AMD side, but that is not what happened on the NVIDIA side. Yeah. How much of this wonkiness is just developers just thought everything would be getting more below the 4090 as well?
1: I mean, there's probably some of that involved. Um, I think there's a, a, a probably a bigger impact which is very different from like what particular machinations that AMD or NVIDIA are doing with hardware levels. And there's a sort of like a basic game development trend that is running away with performance. That's Mm -hmm. sort of like, uh, because you can make things look really awesome, really easily. There's less rigor happening in how that's happening. That makes Mm -hmm. sense. So like, You can make something look really good and there's a couple of different ways you could do that and you could make something look really good by burning 12 gigabytes worth of vram or you can make something look about as good while spending uh, using much less if you're clever about a couple of different things um if you have a development studio where a whole bunch of people are just sort of Doing or like experimenting, doing cool stuff, making cool things, and they end up with the expensive version of the thing that they made a couple of times, you can end up in a situation where it's really hard to tune back mm-hmm. from where you are right now. And I feel like that's happening more often than someone up high guessing wrong about spec. That's, that's sort of what I, I feel in my gut is that the artist just made something look really, really sexy. Everyone was like, that looks really, really sexy. And then much, much later, when we we're trying to release, you know, developers are looking at it like, oh, shoot, we're running out of bandwidth here. How the heck do we do that? We'll just dial down some textures in some places. And you can't, it's too late to reach down into the bowels of the system that's been put together and make the real change or rebuild the thing in the way that would be much better.
0: Um, well, it's also complicated by the fact that, like, last generation, you had 8-gigabyte consoles, and then I'd say 4-gigabyte graphics cards and 8 gigabytes in a PC, and so everything was nicely kind of lined up, actually. This generation, if you do what you just said, and you're like, well, we may need to turn some things down, the person may raise their hand and go, but it runs fine on the PlayStation and Xbox, and that's yeah. half of our user base. And yeah. they go, well, what about PC gamers? Well, the enthusiasts are still fine. Anyone that bought a 6700 XT or higher on the AMD side's fine. Anyone yep. who buys the expensive stuff from NVIDIA, this gen's fine. Any of the cards besides the 7600, which is like 230 now, <laughs> anything right. above that's fine. It's really just the 3070. <laughs> are we really going... And I know that sounds like a lot of people, but it's a the best-selling card from one generation, yeah. from one company for two years. It's not including right. Pascal, Turing, RDNA123. It's really 5% of gamers, actually. <laughs> Once yeah, you slice away how many gems exactly. there have been. And like, are we really going to compromise the engine for this or just hope the 5070 solves the problem? You know, Right. And it's usually not compromising the
1: engine. It's just sort of like, uh, I don't know, there's. Sure. Ways you can make like yeah, the d- ways you make do. assets yeah. now is like you can you could end up in a situation where you've made a unique material for like almost every surface, or you could have not done that and therefore mm-hmm. you're saving so much. Like if you reusing textures in smart ways, that's a savings. If you're using reusing materials in smart ways, that means you don't you're not like because mater- like materials are small programs that run on your GPU, right? So if you have a hundred materials that are doing slightly different things and they're hard compiled to do slightly different things, then do you have a hundred different little tiny programs in memory on your GPU doing different little things. If you have four materials that are configured slightly differently, that might not be as heavy, right? That that might not be as big of a problem.
0: But if you didn't do that way from the start, like going back and doing that is it's going to be a nice That's not nightmare. viable. That's remaking the game, right? That's remaking that part of the game. It's not going to happen. So well, here's a sacrifice funny Pieces. Example that kind of lines up with that too is it's like when I'm editing my videos for YouTube, like if I want to throw a video over me talking, I will just mute a video and throw it over my video talking. And yeah. technically, my 4090s rendering both of those to only actually show this and not show my face. But the difference for me is it takes 21 minutes instead of 20. Like, right. I don't really care. <laughs> and the fact that I saved so much time just throwing this, the editing takes most of the time. Anyways, yeah. I just threw it together. It's not a big deal. But now if I was right. making five hour documentaries, maybe I'd put more thought into smartly recording that so that right. a cut or, could or be or done quicker. slicing the underneath. Exactly.
1: For sure. And like that developer convenience is the third metric, right? If you're looking at performance, the classic ones are CPU time, millisecond time, and ram like memory usage the third component is how easy was it to make the thing happen
0: mm-hmm.
1: because it's a classic was you have three axes pick two <laughs> like that, that's sort of how you can think about it right if you want to make it really awesome have really excellent cpu performance use very little memory boy howdy it took a lot of man hours to make that system do that thing mm-hmm. right that well it was expensive in terms, and of even a
0: culture like the people who make Doom games, they all maybe they it's all ever present. They're thinking of that the whole time. But yeah. then you know you can have studios that I'm trying to think of a good example. Right? I mean, honestly, Bethesda <laughs> may be a good example. They make great games that are really cool, but they're giant games, and a lot of the work is like this teddy bear sitting on a toilet holding a newspaper and Fallout yeah. Four. I put this here. I, I didn't put thought into how optimized that room was. It just looks fun. But exactly. We had to do this a thousand times this week. So, like, are you really asking me to take twice as much time? Exactly. It, like, the creation
1: engine has been successful. People gripe on it all the time. But one of the reasons it's been so beloved by modders and stuff like that, it's really easy to get in there and do stuff to it. You can change things really easily. It's really easy to make content in. I think what the. I'm probably wrong, but I think like Skyrim was made with under 100 people in the studio. Right, I would believe those, that. You know, all of yeah, all of all of the dungeons were made by like four people. Right, they just went in. <clears throat> they do it really fast because they're the tool sets. It's you know, it's it's got a long history. Right, that's a way of nice way of saying legacy. But it's got it's got a long history, so it's it's been doing the thing for a long time. It, the all, the pipeline's well built. Um, and with, with one of the questions previously mentioned, um, memory bandwidth. Uh, yeah, maybe the way the memory is laid out isn't the best for, like, cache coherency or, or cache misses or whatever. But do you care if the game is awesome and a lot of fun to play? You probably don't care that
0: much. And also to touch on that question, too, my experience has always been—actually, I've always said this to my friends all the way since Fallout 3— when I went from playing it on the consoles and I was like, no, and then I tried it on PC and I was like, this game's awesome. It's like, get Bethesda Studio games on PC. They're meant to run on a PC and they love lots of bandwidth. They've always loved a ton of bandwidth and having ample uh, uh, DRAM. They've always liked having that. And just because they're not using a lot of VRAM, which they typically don't actually, does not mean that... The way the game's just, some would say clumsily, but maybe I'll say hastily put together for each section, it likes that form of brute force. And you can see how, like, a console that's like the one thing the consoles usually don't really have.
1: Sure. And we can talk a little bit about like differences in engine, right? Like, we, we can talk about this low level stuff. You walk into a room in, let's use Destiny 2. Destiny 2's engine is like the polar opposite of the creation engine, right? You walk into a room in Destiny. And you see some stuff on a table, okay. So all those things are made out of meshes, sure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, in Destiny, one it might be one mesh for the whole thing, right, with different materials applied to it, or it might be some some subset, you know, whatever whatever was reasonable. But in Engine, like all of the lighting is like turbo baked down to all these items. All of the the the, the meshes themselves have been uh, turned into a format that's like. We're assuming it's never going to move. It's always going to be right here, right? If you do that, that you, you get a lot of benefits. Like you can do baked lighting, uh, and baked lighting looks excellent. Um, you can do things where where you can just like drop faces that people are never going to see. That kind of stuff. If you and if you want to have an engine where someone can pick up a teddy bear and then bring it over to their table that has all of the cheese in in Skyrim. on top of the table, right? And drop the teddy bear on top of it. You can't do any of that, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things are dynamic. All of those, like all the cheese wheels have physics. Physics is not free, right? And so all of these things that are capable of doing physics, the physics isn't happening all the time. The physics like goes to sleep and stops being simulated once it's not moving enough.
0: Mm -hmm. But
1: you still need to allocate memory to put it there, put it in the physics simulation, uh, and dynamic physics is just takes more space. It takes more processing.
0: So actually, I actually have an interesting. A uh, question here from another Dave, uh, another game developer named Dave Schultz who says, hey Tom and hey Taylor, when do you think we'll finally embrace and transition to fully utilizing all available cores for games? Working with Unreal Engine 5, it's extremely hard to offload some game logic to the other threads since a lot of available functions from Unreal's framework don't work well or won't even accept anything that's not executed in the main game thread. And currently, game logic gets more and more complicated bottlenecking performance, not just because of the graphics. I could see other engines having the same problem soon. So what's the best way forward? What are the challenges running logic outside of that main game thread?
1: This is a great question. I love this question. Um, so yeah, uh, Unreal definitely has a single threading problem, not capital P, but it's got it's got a it's got a single threading problem. Um, I think that's like sort of history based, right? Mm-hmm. The Unreal Engine's been around since forever. You can trace it in a pretty straight line, it's gotten better and whatnot, but on a fundamental level like right, you have a main thread that's also sometimes doing stuff on other threads. Some things are pretty easy to multi-thread. Physics multi-threads pretty easily, you can say, hey physics, do your stuff and then we'll sync up later. Uh, rendering is, is good to push onto a, uh, another thread, because you can say at the end of a game frame, hey render thread, do this, see you later. And the rendering thread like, yeah, I'll do all that thing. And you know, the game logic marches forward, and the rendering thread is busy telling the GPU to run the, the, the frame that just was simulated, and then the GPU renders that thing. And so you end up with a little bit of latency that no one notices, and it's fine. Um, multi-threading gameplay is hard. Uh, <laughs> fun, I think fundamentally one of the reasons it's hard is that like, gameplay is about making things interact with each other making and like so often that means that like something over here in memory if you if, want if you want to think you have to think about it in terms of memory because um something over here in memory wants to talk to this thing over here in memory somewhere else right something like because it moved around and hit a thing so you need to tell that thing that something happened right um there's lots of different ways you could approach that like the two classical ones right now is like you can do the object-oriented way uh unreal engine offers an object oriented api for dealing with things where you say what's that A character in the world is called an actor it's got components on it and they have functions that you call on the components to interact with those things um it's a very nice way to model a problem space Mm -hmm. it's like you, you just loop through the actors the actors do all of their updates and then you can move on to the next part of the frame um and that's how games have been made for a really long time, Um, it doesn't go over to multi-threading well. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why it doesn't go over to multi-threading well is because of where... It's it's complicated. I'm not an expert, so I don't want to walk over my own toes here, but I'll I'll give it my best shot. So things that are easily multi-threaded are where you have, like, hey, this section of data right here, I'm going to do this process on it, and nothing else needs to talk to that data, and right. I have a lot of that data. Right. Right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna spin up ten threads. I've got a I've got hundreds of these little chunks of data. Go. Right. So each thread's like yeah 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 yeah. If one takes like a little bit longer or a little bit. L- if it takes a little bit longer. That's fine. You've got ten of the threads
0: chewing. Right. If one of them takes like less it'll time. And will schedule to the one that's not being used. Exactly. It's
1: fine. If if this one takes a little bit less time, it just grabs the next one off the uh, of the ready stack, and it it can chew through really fast. It's great. Like this is why graphics are amazing for uh, for multi threading. Right. It's like I have this really big thing of pixels. I'm doing mostly the same thing to every pixel. We can spin that up to a whole bunch of different shader cores. Um, I actually really like uh, MythBusters. Did a really good example of this uh, in a video where they um, they did a a painting machine, a face painting machine with paintballs, and they had one machine that represented the CPU, and they shot. Is a, a gun that rotated with an arm, and it shot out a little smiley face. And it took a little okay. while, right, because it had to move and shoot, move and shoot, move and shoot. And then they had this other thing that was just an array of of, of barrels, and each barrel shot one ball, and it painted the Mona Lisa in you know a split second,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because each barrel just had to do one thing, as opposed to one barrel needing to do a whole bunch of a lot of things, right? And so that like like that's parallelization. So, gameplay simulation is a lot harder to break up into lots of little chunks that are kind of the same. Mm -hmm. Some engines are, uh, some developers have been more successful in doing this than others. Uh, Naughty Dog is one of those. They have this thing where pretty much every interaction is broken up into jobs, which is a technical term, and those jobs go into a pool of. uh, thread lits, basically, that can chew on lots of different jobs, and things are scheduled in such a way that you don't have um, bad interactions. Mm -hmm. So one of the the problems of multithreading is that if one thread is doing something, and then another thread tries to do something in the same place, very bad, it's going to crash, because data is going to flip in the middle of some operation, because two things are trying to write to it at once. Uh, there's two ways you can solve that problem. Either you can have each piece of data say, "Hey, something's talking to me. If you want to talk to me, wait." Mm-hmm. Right, and that's that, that 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 works, right? But that can create problems where if something's working on something and it's working on it for a while, and a bunch of other things want to work on that, they're all stalled out waiting for that thing to be released. Right. That's pretty. Uh, it's pretty easy to find a little bottleneck like that. Um, the other way to do multi-threading, which is what graphics does, is that you schedule stuff in such a way that nothing really has to wait because they're not trying to talk to the same thing. Um, so this is a long way of getting to one of the new paradigms that's coming back into uh, coming back into game development, data-driven design. Mm-hmm. is what it's generally called. Uh, one of the Uh, more popular ways of approaching that is is through something called an ECS entity component system Um, and so these are like low level constructs that are able to say okay we're representing uh, these uh, entities, these game object like things with lots of different kinds of data that data is stacked into uh, instead of uh, array of structs, they're destructive arrays kind of structure and to di- dive into that a little bit, there's lots of different ways that you could organize data. So if you have an object-oriented way of organizing what a particular gameplay actor is doing, you say, well, here's my actor, and here's the bit that does its movement. Here's the bit that does its combat. Here's the bit that does its health. There's that thing. And then you have, you know, you move that up, and they you do it again. And you move it up, and you do it again.
0: Right. It's like... okay. Is, uh, tell me this is a dumb analogy it's almost like the difference between how hdmi and displayport does things hdmi it's a stream displayport it's a packet that's why displayport can do so many different resolution and frame rate types is because it's in packets so you Maybe. can do whatever you know sure. And it's like you're saying with multi-threading it's like instead of having Silos. It's like we're doing everything and then sending it, everything and then sending it, and that's what multi. That will allow you to use more cores because everything's being done in a packet and sent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And yeah. So the the the, the structure erase thing is is a, is a little different than that because it's how it, it goes down to like what's going on in the cache. Um, so when you're ripping through a list of data and all of the data is right in a row, CPUs love that. They're really, right. really excellent because they can anticipate it's like, oh, you're reading things sequentially? I'm going to get the rest of it. And so when you get there in the processing, it's already right on your L1. It's ready to go. Uh, and if you need to cycle back, maybe it's still in L3, right? And it's really fast uh, because there's orders of magnitude difference in speed of access as you come up to cache levels. And mm-hmm. accessing something from RAM is like a thousand times slower, hundred times slower than accessing something from cache. Um, because the CPU has to wait. Right. It's like, I need this memory. I don't have it. Brrr, thanks. Right? And that, you do that a lot. It's called a cache miss. So if you do things in an object-oriented way where you have a lot of pointers on the heap, I don't know how technical we can get here. It's, we're, we're getting pretty far into the weeds. But basically, you, you end up, can end up in a situation where the data that you want to access is just everywhere. And right. you can't anticipate it. So every time you want to get something, pretty good chance it's not in cache. You're going to spend a lot of time going to get the thing, processing it, move on. That's not in cache either. Got to even get the mm. thing. Okay. So one of the things that data different design and ECSs are trying to do is that they try and make it so that all of the memory that you're trying to access is right there. You're going to be looping through a whole bunch of things. We're going to make it so that hey, you want to loop through all of the positions. All of the positions for all of the entities are right after each other. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all of their health data is right after each other. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So, no matter what tr- piece of data you're trying to access, it's boom, you can just rip right down that list, and the cache system can keep up. Right? It can. It, it all the data is uh, readily available to you. You have way fewer cache misses and you can uh, get wildly better performance Right, just because you're not burning that time
0: going back to RAM. But it almost just sounds like you need a fresh game engine <laughs> to do that. Yeah, right? so
1: it, it can be really difficult. So, so Unreal is not like standing still, right? They're doing the work. It just can be a lot of work in different places. Um, there, Unreal's got some ECS stuff happening under the hood in places. It's just, you know, it's kind of hard to replace the whole underpinnings of some of the other things that you, you're working on. Uh, so these these improvements are coming in modules rather than whole different engines. Yeah. And so, like what what Naughty Dog was doing with Jobs is sort of operating in a similar similar kind of vein. It was a fundamental technical shift that allowed them to do, you know, The Last of Us on the, on the PS. Was it The Last of Us was the PS three right? Yeah. Which is wild. What that what that game was capable of doing on that hardware was really really impressive, and they they've kept it up. Uh, ever since. Um, So there are new engines coming out that are doing that sort of thing. Unity's been trying to do this for years, and they've been struggling with it a little bit because they've been trying to do it in C Sharp and sort of mutating C Sharp in order to have this sort of low-level performance behavior. Uh, There's other uh, game engines. Uh, There's one, there's an open-source game engine called Bevy that uh, is doing an ECS-style stuff in Rust that's sort of Verbaling mm-hmm. in the background people are starting to or it's, it's got some good development It's working on it um games are being written with uh, a framework called ntt which is a header-based thing that uh, like minecraft uses it um uh diablo 2 resurrected uses it um so like and that's just like a c++ drop-in thing like if you store your data in this structure and then you can access this in the structure and you're gonna have a good time uh
0: with in terms of uh but Unreal well, Engine mean, Five isn't doing this, you're saying, and it's built in these modules that makes it hard to do it unless you start over. Yeah, it's over. like like
1: it's. I don't think you need to start over. Like, it looks, one, this is not going to happen. <laughs> that's just not know. what and, Epic's and going to do. Of these
0: games are being ported from Unreal Engine Four to Five as well, with even more legacy code and all this stuff. Well, I mean, so Five is, is a pretty module. big difference.
1: Like, there are some significant differences from Four to Five, but there's totally a through line. Yeah. Like, it doesn't take that much to convert a project to five. If your project is just data, it works. Fu- it works great. Like you don't have to do pretty much anything. Um, it's not entirely true, of course, yeah. but like in general, it's it's pretty straightforward. And it's only when you've built things to APIs that have just been deprecated that you need to do more effort. Yeah, because of Unreal Engine's legacy, they they're, they they don't have the ability they're not going to completely rewrite all the things from scratch other engines have that capacity because they're brand new or because the developers can be like "Uh, we're just going to rewrite this right here and you know they don't have to worry about you know millions of other developers that are also using this platform they don't have Mm -hmm. to worry about uh, i mean for epic i'm sure it's really it'd be crazy to suggest that hey we're going to rewrite the core actor framework right
0: Okay. Yeah, and it's (laughs) just—it's also funny because you know I would almost say thank God the PS4 and Xbox One had such weak CPUs because it at least forced developers to get you to good at using like six plus threads, you know, instead of pretty much just relying on two to four, right? So many years. But you got to wonder if you know, like the Zen moment from AMD would have happened sooner if that would have wouldn't have even happened anyways. Because I, I can't help but feel like developers are. You know the PS4 comes out, the Xbox One comes out, so much effort is put into finally optimizing for slow multi core CPUs. DirectX 12 comes out, basically hyping this up. Kind of feels like DirectX 12 really only benefited CPU performance if it's a PS4, though. If I'm being honest, <laughs> almost seemed to make it worse. Like to this day, if I have a game like Deep Rock Galactic, it's like DX 12, DX 11 mode, I'm like, 11, please, because uh, I don't want my game to crash. Uh, That's and- a, yeah. Just, just to interject there, the the crashing thing. I totally felt that too. Like
1: games are often more unstable, but the reason for that is that twelve, like uh, the, the DX eleven and earlier, was built on a sort of things like give us some instructions in an abstract sense, and we'll figure out the details. Twelve and Vulcan and Metal, you know, those APIs are way much much lower down. You have to do all the things, and you have to do all the things right. And if you don't do the things right, you get crashes so it's not really a surprise that you have less stability because all of the developers have to do more work they have to have a better understanding not all the the
0: developers because a good example uh, i don't remember which interview it was but i brought up metro exodus enhanced edition and i told everybody hey even if you've got amd if you can handle ray tracing at all turn it down and play the enhanced edition it never crashes it loads faster There's just not bugs in this version. And it's fully ray traced, which is fun. And what I was suggested to me is yeah, they had to rewrite the whole game. Like they probably did that, what seemed like an academic exercise at the time that not a lot of GPUs could even run, because it was almost like what I've heard what Naughty Dog does when they port The Last of Us every time to the new generation. They're just getting used to the engine or something, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, or or mm -hmm. on an Uncharted game, they're getting used to making games on this new platform. And then because of that, they can hit the ground running with a real new game. Sure. Th- that That's kind of what I think they did with Metro Exodus Enhanced Edition is they're like, look, this isn't going to do much but get people to talk about it on Reddit for a few years. Right. But if we have right. to rewrite our engine for full ray tracing now, it will work perfectly for the sequel. Yeah. And it does. So it's not that DirectX 12 makes games run worse. It's just that if all you do is Frankenstein it on it yeah. sucks. and if and, you rewrite the whole game, it's m- way more stable than the eleven. You can do
1: some crazy stuff with it, yeah. Like uh, I think, you know, you're, you're going to play like Doom and whatnot. You're playing Doom on Vulcan if you can, because the engineers that wrote it know exactly what they're doing,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they killed it. So I think there's what well, you, you've heard the, the term like a 10x engineer, right? Like that that that's sort of a thing ish in in engineering. And there really is a distinction between like the top end of the top end of an engine uh, of a class of, of, of discipline and someone more mid or lower, right? Um, if you task a random in a, in a random selection a, a, a game developer, they're probably not going to be that great at graphics. Graphics is a specialization. If you mm-hmm. then dive into graphics, like the top end of graphics is way better than the mid mid stage or the, the mid level of graphics because they've. They're more familiar with the thing. They understand it more deeply. They've been doing it longer. So you can totally end up in a situation where you've got pretty good engineers, but you don't have the best. So mm-hmm. it's pretty easy for pretty decent engineers to make some mistakes. Like I'm not the best engineer at anything that I do mm-hmm. because I have you know I'm you know jack of all trades. As I said uh, in the opening. So I make mistakes all the time. I'm very happy I don't have to make those mistakes in a graphics engine that causes crashes with millions of people. Um, So, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, moving forward though, I mean, and I kind of sidetracked myself, but like (laughs) after, when I brought up the Metro Exodus thing, the thing I was actually leading to saying is, there's a part of me that I can, I almost feel this, it feels to me like there was all of this effort to optimize for weaker cores, and then Zen came out and pushed Intel, and, and the and devs were like, oh, thank God. We don't need to worry about this anymore because now we have 16 to 64 threads. There'll be a 96-core thread ripper soon. And, you know, I know that there's going to be a new, like, Raptor like refresh, Emerald Rapids edition of their HEDT, and all this stuff coming out, and and it's like I almost feel like developers can almost take a break though from that because CPUs are so strong now yeah. that they really don't need to worry that much. I mean, like, and and that actually transitions me into rentable units, which is something that I leaked that Intel's apparently working on for I. I it sounds like Panther Lake will be the first one to use it, you know, sometime in the next few years. They are moving past hyper-threading towards... It sounds the way I would describe it, right? Because I leaked it first in a video. Then I talked with another developer, actually, Brian Heemskirk, uh, based on a quote from an Intel contact. We talked about what it meant. It, It really seems like it's kind of like the Zen 4, Zen 4C thing taken to the next level. So things are organized into rentable units. So if you have eight cores, there's four rentable units, And what they do is kind of like Zen four C. They try to minimize the size of the cores, but they can share resources. And so, one of those cores in the rentable unit, and have like double the cache and boost to seven gigahertz or something. Now, if you use all eight cores at once, they may go down to six. There may be a hit to IPC, but as long, but perhaps the main game thread can use one of the cores in a rentable unit, then the other threads aren't. It's not an issue. It sounds like this may lead to incredible like single threaded performance and I guess you might say four threaded performance and then you have a ton of e-cores in the back. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't know what you think about like this concept. Like and how it will affect at I have think games it's really happen. cool.
1: I think it's really cool. Single threading is still king. Like if you if you have really, really good single threading performance, everything benefits. Because things that are single threaded are faster and things that are multi-threaded are also faster because you can like one th- one thread can just chew through more stuff. Um, like that's one of the reasons why the PS5's graphics uh, system is has an edge over the uh, Series X. Sometimes the Series X graphic system went wider and slower, and the PS5s went tighter and faster. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a trade-off that you can make. and generally having fewer faster things is often better than lots and lots of lo- considerably slower things. Like that's why th- that's one of the reasons why like having all these ecores, all these a lot of people are like, I don't want these, get them out. Lots of slower things aren't better than fewer fast things. That's why a lot of people are still well, I don't know about a lot of people, I can't speak for everybody, but like eight threads, uh, or, or eight core, sixteen threads is v- super viable for games, and probably will be for a really long time, um, because the, you know it's hard to scale threading, and eventually you just you get diminishing returns on adding more and more cores to a thing, unless the thing you're doing is like really, really ready for multi-core stuff, like. If you're running Cinebench, yeah, it'll chew through lots and lots of cores. It wants as many cores as it can get at It's going to get really good scaling out of every single core. Um, But when you're doing stuff on a game engine, so much of those things don't thread well, that by the time, if, you, if you, <laughs> you, know, you you have eight threads, you're like, okay, well, we have the graphics thread, this, this uh, main game thread, we've got the physics thread, and we're doing some other things in these other threads, and that's like seven. Yeah, don't <laughs> right? get
0: me started on Cinebench, because there's this bizarre thing, this mindset, I feel like, that's developed amongst gaming circles on Reddit that Cinebench is somehow a measure of gaming performance if you only do Cinebench on one core, which is not true really gaming performance is like the top two to four threads like that's what you want to test yeah instead of is either testing 40 threads or one right but A good game benchmark is like four to eight yeah <laughs> you know
1: all, all games these days are multi-threaded because all all cpus are multi-threaded it'd be crazy you're, you're just leaving performance on the table if you're just doing something single-threaded
0: mm-hmm. um so yeah because gaming uh, performance isn't single-threading performance no it's just it's more leans towards that than 64 thread but it's really like six threaded performance kind of i don't know how else to put it right you, you're
1: getting benefit out of having multiple cores but you're just it doesn't scale forever and forever unless you unless you have a, an engine doing fundamentally different things mm-hmm. but it takes an engine doing fundamentally different things thinking about the problem space in a different way to be able to scale up like that but the thing is is that it's can be harder to think in that, that way like it is it is more difficult Um, or at least it's not as uh, the knowledge isn't as well spread around, so fewer people know how to do that well, and then you also have a lot of legacy systems that just don't do that, Mm -hmm. so you have a lot of games that just don't do that, so there's not a lot of, like, you just sort of have a chicken and egg sort of situation, where you don't need to spend the development resources to do it the scalable way, Um, especially since, you know, again, you go back to consumer hardware, uh, you know, if you have an eight-core, sixteen-thread CPU, you have twice the threads that the consoles have right now, because mm-hmm. all the consoles are eight cores, no, no multi-threading, or no, 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 uh, no SMT2. So,
0: yeah. Um, quick jumper writes in and says, Hi, Tom and Taylor. Is Intel going with rentable units because their big little concept failed, or do you actually think this is an evolution of it? Also, what will AMD do? Will they go Zen C route, or do you think they have their own rentable units in the pipeline? Well, I, I, let's save this that quite that's really an entirely different question sure. for like what I think AMD would do, but I, I guess actually I'll give my answer. I, I think the fact that they're going with rentable units allegedly that and and that i hear that arrow like won't have hyper threading and so may have a pretty decent issue for a couple years yeah tells me that they don't think the big little concept is a failure because i don't think they'd be axing hyper threading unless they're going to bet even harder on E cores, right, right? And, and that makes sense to me i think i mean
1: intel's bread and butter for a really long time has been strong single core performance this feels like just doubling down on that trying to pull out as much single core as they possibly can when it makes sense to. And then those, like the, when you want to go hard on one versus wide on many, those are usually different problem sets. Um, I don't think there's, the, there's no there's no collision there. You kind of want to be able to do both. I would expect, if you're doing a general purpose CPU, right? Um, I don't see, I don't really see what they're doing as a failure, except for the fact that they're having, you know, corporate issues, right? That's, yeah. that's a, it's a different thing than the,
0: the, the worry is, do they have the money to get to 2027? Not if it's a bad idea, right? No, I
1: think it's a really cool idea. Like it, it makes me think of, of the original crisis game, right? The original mm-hmm. crisis was written it was like a single threaded game. And it was written assuming that we were going to hit six, seven gigahertz pretty soon, Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, it still is a beast to run because we have CPUs that are just barely breaking five now.
0: Rentable units may finally get us to one forty-four hertz in Crisis. You yeah, know, that's my yeah, guess. And that's,
1: exactly, and that's why, like, the the like the Crisis Remastered was made with a new version of the Crytek engine that's mm-hmm. multi-threaded, and it runs better because it can actually utilize your computer's resources.
0: Well, so I think you're actually a good person to ask this question then. I believe that right now most testing that I've seen is E-Cores really only help gaming if the performance is so low, like below 60 hertz, that the latency communication penalty going from the P to the E-Cores is lower than maintaining 60. But it doesn't really help you get from 120 to 240, and it's mostly for background tasks if you're gaming above 60 hertz. Now, again, if you have... 40 hertz. I'm sure the E cores at that point are helping you stay at 40, but that latency penalty is a really pernicious problem. And I assume if they're going with rentable units, they're going to solve that latency communication issue. I, there's got to be something going on where that's not going to happen. If they're going to actually, they're going to arguably almost go down to just four cores, really, if right. like boost fully. But in the meantime, Arrow Lake almost seems like it has an issue to me because I've heard they may come up with some software mitigations or something for it. But they're not finishing hyper-threading on it because they're done with hyper-threading, but rentable units aren't an Arrow Lake next year. So they might have eight big cores, only eight threads, plus 16 little cores, and eventually I think a plus 32. But how could this affect gaming performance? Because in the testing I've seen, especially with like the Zen 4X 3D stuff, you never want the vCache core to start using the game to start using the non-V-cache CCD because you want those eight cores, 16 threads talking to each other. Yeah. What's going to happen with Arrow Lake when you have eight cores, only eight threads, and not really being able to go to the E cores? And I'm also curious what you think the mitigations could be too.
1: I think that's really interesting. So like the the, the latency penalty is a problem, but it's only a problem if you're trying to use tho- those resources within one frame right kicked off from one thing it, you probably can get away with better utilization if what you're trying to do is sort of desync from the main 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 thread pumping those main frames if you can spin off longer processes or processes that are less uh latency sensitive that might be a place where those things can scale better but that's not something that's really common in game engines. Like most mm-hmm. game engines are doing everything in one frame, right? That's generally how it works, and it's pretty uncommon to be doing something, you know, complicated behind the scenes that gets synced up to at a, 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 a some frequency. Um, it's more difficult to do that. You have to manage memory in in funky ways, right. and you have to. Duplicating some resources because you're simulating a thing over here that then is represented down here. That kind of stuff. That kind of a thing. Um, historically, like multi-thread or uh, not multi-threading, um, uh, hyper-threading is not. It's not a two x
0: right. Just because you're two no. threads on the same core, you're not getting double the performance. You get it's like a there. fifteen to thirty percent increase, yeah. depending on how well it works.
1: Right. And so, like the reason why hyper-threading was, was Together, it was because uh, engineers were noticing, like, okay, we're doing some stuff in this core, but only some amount of the core is active and doing something at any one time. If we can figure out how to use more of the core at once, we're going to get better performance. That's what hyperthreading is. Is like you're doing some stuff over here, which means that these things aren't active, which means something else can be doing something on those components, and that's a way to get better performance. Um, That's not the only way to do that at the low level uh, one of the reasons why like the, the Apple silicon stuff is really impressive it's not because they have hyper because they don't have hyperthreading. Mm-hmm. their single threading performance is really impressive and the one of the ways that they got there is that they have a, a very large, uh, at least for the time um, amount of, of cash used to store uh, processes, instructions that are being executed out of order so out-of-order instructions are one way that you can pull more performance and saturate more of the core at once, because a particular set of instructions might need this bit, another particular set might be this bit over here, and so if you can sort of uh, pull apart the instructions that don't need to interact with the results
0: of another, right. you can do multiple things at once, and then line them up, and then make them happen. Is that something and Intel st- you think can easily do with like their drivers, though? or is, is I, it I, fundamentally don't, need I don't to be done. know.
1: I think I'm I bet pretty hard that's a very low level hardware thing. Yeah, that's um, what I would guess. Yeah, uh, certain certainly the amount of space available to do that thing is very low level hardware. Intel does the same thing, AMD does the same thing. They're doing those right of order instructions. It's just the Apple silicon stuff just had like 2 or 3x more space in the silicon
0: dedicated to the stuff required to make that stuff happen. And uh, so the question becomes: Is Arrow Lake going to have some of that? You know, right. to make up for it.
1: Yeah, it's it's not magic. It's just they made a different, they chose a different set of balance, and that paid off really well. And it didn't hurt that they were running on five nanometer, nanometer before everybody else, right? Like, <laughs> <that's> or <Before> how-
0: something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah That's yeah, that's true. And I guess Arrow Lake supposed to use TSMC N three, maybe even N three X, from what I've heard um and their own 20a node so this is a and you know actually yeah that what i've heard is that tsmc's nodes are better at logic density than intel's for what they're marketed as it's all marketing Mm -hmm. but like whatever in in, tsmc calls four nanometer intel's four nanometers logic density probably isn't as good but i've heard their wire density is better and no one really talks about that But that's what really goes into the I.O. and everything else. And so maybe that will allow for some space for that. I don't know. That'd be interesting. That'd be very interesting.
1: Yeah, they've been pushing for that, like,
0: turbo hybrid chip for a really long time
1: now. Hasn't been paying off as well as I think they'd hoped. But it'd be really interesting if they can get that kind of very different uh, different chips on the same package actually working in a reliable way.
0: Well, and I guess it is worth pointing out, you know, I'm saying these eight cores... Won't have hyper threading. They're probably all running above six gigahertz with like yeah. you know twenty percent or more higher IPC than Raptor Lake. So it's yeah. like you remove hyper threading, but they're, they're going to be strong cores. So yeah. I think there's going to be a situation where like if a, if one of those game engines truly has rewritten itself for that multi threading you've talked about, perhaps Zen five does just as well or wins. But most games haven't, and so that's where. Arrow Lake will win. And then some games don't even need that many threads. They don't. Right. They're more linear. Arrow Lake will probably win those games as well.
1: Yeah, I would expect Arrow Lake and, and uh, Panther Lake's a sequel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would expect kind those of to of like...
0: it's complicated, but yes.
1: Sure. <laughs> you know, I, I would expect those to do Unreal Engine really well, right? They're going to solve that single-threaded performance problem by just having better single-threads to throw at the... or single-threaded performance to throw at the problem. So, I think that might be really awesome if we have that Big performance uplift in that space
0: well so this perfectly leads into like one thing i want to bring up as well related to this what i heard in panther lake is there were two coves that were considered for the big cores there was panther cove which it sounded like was like a seven to nine percent ipc increase over arrow lake arrow lakes lion cove i'm remembering yeah uh but it had four-way hyper threading so it had four right. threads per core and then there was the cougar Cove rentable unit design and they're like this has 40% or something more IPC but there is no hyper threading and they're like well I mean at best out of hyper threading yeah we're going with the 40% for sure Yeah, I still think AMD's working on 4-way hyper threading for Zen 6 will that help gaming performance at all in your mind?
1: I don't know Like back in the day people used to say turn off hyper threading to get better performance because it could have an impact Um, so I, I I would guess it wouldn't have a very large impact
0: mm-hmm. uh, you know, unless it's bogged down and is running out of threads or something, right? Which probably right. isn't going to be happening. Probably isn't going to be happening. I would like th-
1: th- the difference between sixteen and thirty-two threads with when it comes to game performance probably isn't that big. Would mm-hmm. be my, would be was like, like my gut level feeling. You're going to get more performance out there, but the diminishing returns is real. And when you're going, we're talking about uh, hyper-threading, like, those are like diminishing returns upon diminishing returns. You're, you're, at, you're spreading things across more threads, which is not as good as having just more single-core performance, and then those threads are all running on stuff that's not as good as if you had uh, separate logical cores and you get diminished performance there, diminished returns there. Um, so I would guess, I would bet, that it probably isn't gonna have a, a massive impact it would have yeah. a big impact on server. It would have a big impact on uh, you know, cinebenchy style things, uh, rendering style things. It's going to have an awesome impact there. Um, but games aren't those things. Games are weird.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if like AMD's solution though. And I don't know. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they're just going to be happy if their server chips are twice as fast as Intel, and they're like, "Yeah, we are losing gaming by twenty percent, whatever." um but i think there is a consideration too like and uh, yeah and you're a good person to ask about this like i'm wondering we're starting to already see i believe some weird fringe scenarios where like comet lake which has 10 cores in a unified ring bus it's like the only real thing we can use to test this besides i guess broadwell (laughs) like and we can see well because they're all in one monolithic intercommunication in a couple games that can actually use more than, you know, say, 16 threads, there's a weird benefit here. Like, is and, and we still see eight cores is enough, but if it had 10 cores with, like, cache, that'd probably be even better. Like, do you... I, I, I'm curious if you think that's true. If in the next five years we're going to see a situation where it's like, no, we really do... A, maybe you don't need it, but we appreciate more than 16 threads in one intercommunic- intercommunication area. Um, and if that's the case, like maybe AMD's answer is just, hey, there's four Zen six cores plus eight Zen six C cores in yeah. one monolithic CCD, and maybe they have four way hyper threading just on the biggest four cores when they run out of threads or something. In those, you know, and maybe those fourth cores are all running above six gigahertz too, and maybe that's their solution anyways. is it's well. We just packed more big cores together and that's going to give us a boost. Or do you not really see games pulling from more than 16 threads anytime soon?
1: I think the trend is definitely going to go more and more towards multi-threading. It's just, it's a hard engineering problem, but there are very, very, very smart people working very, very hard on that problem. So as time goes on, it's game more and more games are going to be able to leverage that performance. Um, So i would expect eventually we're going to get to places where yeah 1632 threads they're doing something they're actually being utilized mm-hmm. um i mean they're being utilized now just not necessarily you know all the way you're not getting it a, and a it's, huge performance it's rarely it.
0: consequential to your max frame rate rarely right.
1: yeah 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 um and the, the thing
0: you mentioned about having
1: everything on one, you know, CCX or whatever, whatever the Intel equivalent is, um, it's interesting because like, it comes back to that latency penalty again, right? Because that's the primary problem when you're jumping across these things is like you would now have to wait on hearing back. And that has that latency can just completely starve out or, or put a hard clamp on the level of, of frame time that you can pull off. So, yeah.
0: All right, no, I wanted to bring up something that you mentioned you wanted to talk about, sure, at least briefly before we started recording. We've already been going for two hours, so <laughs> if you're and if you're busy, just let me know. But you wanted to touch on VR. yeah. what do you want to touch on about VR? let's
1: talk about okay, so we're talking about performance. We're talking about how like eight k screens are pointless, and we're talking about how uh, we're hitting upper bounds and the ability for things to scale. I think VR is a really interesting place here because it, is a, a window through which you, we can't throw enough performance at the problem yet. When mm-hmm. you're talking about playing video games on a monitor in front of your face or in a living room television, boy, how do we have a crap load of performance that we can just set a light and everything looks amazing and we're really close to just being able to do whatever we want there. But in the VR space, that's just so far from the truth for a, a number of reasons. And I think uh vr i so i hope like i'm, I'm i've been i've been uh, a follower of this since the like the original dev, dev kit one of the oculus i've I had the original uh vive i've got an index that i don't use enough uh but like i'm, I'm a firm believer that this could be really transformational for how we interact with computer software Because it can make like I've got I've got four screens arrayed in front of me here with a laptop, and I've got a TV over that way. In a world where I have a headset, I might just need one screen for when I don't want to wear my headset that much, and then I can be like, oh, I need to like I want to think about this on a broader surface, and I put the headset on. And it's not that I have virtual screens because those will be useful certainly very very soon. But you can like get up and have a virtual whiteboard or a virtual three D mm. thing that does whiteboard like stuff. But we don't have a good metaphor for it. So I, that's the the far off future that I uh, tickles my fancy, and I, I, I uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a avid watcher of. Sadly, it's Bradley, and you know, so it's oh. it's always fun yeah, it to like fun, uh, yeah. to like exactly. I, I love hearing you guys talk. I love watching his videos, and I'm always like right there with him when he's talking about. All of the different uh, elements that VR and AR could possibly do that, to make uh, computing um, a little more mobile, a little more uh, physical. I love that stuff. It's, it's one of the, my favorite things that I've interacted with in the past decade. And I think to, to dial all back, bring it back down to like low-level hardware. Um, the thing that I think is going to be really interesting to see in the next couple months is what the Apple Vision Pro ends up actually doing and being like uh the two yeah the top of the line stuff is like the apple vision pro is sitting on one end of the spectrum and we've got the the meta quest to the meta quest three on the other end of the spectrum and we've got two competing versions of uh what this thing can be and the thing that's really interesting to me is the the way that Apple is throwing dedicated silicon at the problem at a really low level, uh, a really low way, right? Like they have a whole chip dedicated to Mm -hmm. processing all of these different components. That's solving, like it's solving the multi-threading problem with dedicated hardware. It's just like all these pieces need to go to different places and have these transformations applied to them. It's just happening on that chip. The normal M2 or M3 or whatever is in that thing. I think it's an M2 doesn't have to worry about a whole bunch of stuff doesn't have to worry about pre, uh, reprojection it doesn't have to worry about compositing it doesn't have to worry about all, all I think probably hand tracking is also handled on the uh, mm-hmm. secondary chip and I think that paints a picture of where we're going to put performance we're not we're like, we, because the, the demands of VR and VR like things are just sky high uh, like e- even what Apple is doing is not the upper bound, right? Uh, in terms of like the even just basic number of pixels in front of your eyes thing, it's it's not the upper bound that they're pretty far off still. Um, in terms of making it, you know, retina quality or whatever, making it so that you can't perceive individual pixels. Um, we still need to throw like crazy amounts of performance at it, so mm. we're gonna have like it's going to happen i think if, if apple keeps pushing in that space they're very good at pushing <clears throat> if they keep pushing in that space we're gonna end up with like dedicated silicon doing a whole bunch of low-level stuff just to eke out as that that level performance that they want uh to run in on things on your face that are running off of a battery that's on your person right it, however they figured out how to do it because right like you know they have a huge chunky battery that's going to be running for two hours maximum and like they're burning through a lot of energy to make the thing work, and there's it still wants more. So I, it's just, I, I, I that's why I, I really like VR because it is, like it's a new frontier in performance. We can t- we talk about we well, don't need eight K we're already like 4k yeah. 120 hertz pc gaming it's like we don't like you don't need more than that doing more than that is like it's nice but like the diminishing returns are crazy the level of effort required to pull something off of that is like heart most of the time doesn't really seem worth it from a developer's point of view unless you're doing like esports type stuff but when you go over to this new space it's like you know uh you're in uh, you're scuba diving or you're you're snorkeling and you hit the edge of the cliff. It just drops out below you. And you're like, Oh no, we need everything that we can throw at this. And it's still not enough. So anyway, that's just me rambling for a little while about why the topic is really cool. But
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the the thing that I have with that is you're going to, you know, you're going to see, Apple pushed that way. Hypothetically, PlayStation will. I, I kind of think they've launched the launch of their newest thing. It, it's a nice device, but I don't want to get into why. I like yeah. think they haven't handled it as well as they could have, um you know. And I, I just wonder, like, how much of this dedication is going to go to anything that makes it mainstream anytime soon, though? Because it does seem like everyone. I think I said this is sadly It's Bradley. Seems like all of a sudden, all companies at once bet. That this is going to be premium. Having mean, said that you can almost argue every company's done that in the past two years about literally yeah. everything. So <laughs> uh, I guess actually yeah. I can come up with that counter argument to myself there, uh, and maybe they just all misread the room at the same time, which is how these corporations tend to do things. If I'm being honest, but you know, I I, I have to wonder like when are they going to put that much money anyone into like a gaming a truly gaming like for PC version of that. And are they ever going to bother to do that until it's just dirt cheap? Because we're on one nanometer or something, or it's, some would wonder if it will even be cheaper on yeah. one nanometer. Um, and like, don't you think like what you're describing? Like, you wear glasses. You're wearing glasses. You? I'm wearing contacts because I prefer contacts. I can sure. assure you, if I was going to though use one of these VR devices while working, I would uh, certainly want them to not be heavier than glasses. And I, I wonder yeah. how you feel about that. Like, don't do they have to get and I think the Apple VR device is just trying to do everything well. It's expensive because it's the base and then we'll just make it slimmer and cheaper over time. But like do you think it has to be kind of like a Google Glass like size before it's that usable? For, well for mainstream
1: For mainstream. So like I think there's a really big gulf between what mainstream wants and what the enthusiast wants. Like the, like the hardcore VR enthusiasts are very happy right now. Right, and the mainstream doesn't want to touch it on, on a general level. I feel like we're in, in, in terms of like the technology curve, VR right now is in like where the Amiga and Commodore were, in or, or maybe the Apple II in terms of like piece like personal computing penetration, which is like that that's really low down on the curve, and like the Apple like I think like the, the Apple. Uh, vision pro is like maybe starting to poke into like being able to pull off reprojection augmented reality, right? We haven't been able to do that basically at all with like cameras on the outside, putting the outside world in front of your face by all reports, Apple's pulled it off and it looks basically like you're looking through the, the headset into the world in front of you. So long as it's lit well enough that they can pick it up in a reasonable way. Uh, you look at your hand, it looks like you're looking at your hand. That's what people who have tried it are saying. Um, which is just so far beyond what yeah. all other hardware before it's pulled off. Like that feels like a big shift. It feels like an important shift in what the technology is capable for or capable of. And that reminds me of like the shift of going from command line to GUI when it comes to oh. computing, right? It, like like really low level, really fundamental changes that make the thing make more sense for more people. So if when you have, uh, you know, the current existing s- state-of-the-art for, for VR is like you have to put this bulky headset on. If you really want the really good stuff, it's tethered to a big box. You have these controllers on. It can be a lot of fun and really immersive, but it's, it's fiddly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like the, the, what Apple's pitching, what I'm sure Facebook or Meta wants to pitch is you, you put the headset on, you're done. You don't have to do anything else right it's just on it just works you can interact with things with your hands um like the apple's uh, thing like you don't even have to uh you don't have to move a cursor and you sort of look at something and pinch your fingers together sort of anywhere and it just clicks right that like that could be i'm not saying it is but there's a solid chance that is as impactful to vr as the mouse ended up being to mm-hmm. pcs right uh, I think it's kind of fascinating that Apple again did it first, <laughs> or, yeah. or, or or didn't do it first because Xerox did the mouse, right? But uh, and they didn't do you know eye controls and stuff first, but they're but effectively better. they kind of did. And they they kinda yes, kinda did. they could argue other VR the devices package. did this, but yeah, they put it in the package and they sold it, uh, or they're going to be selling it. Um, so. Yeah, so if you look at that from like the, this is the first, this is the Lisa. The Apple, the Vision Pro is the Apple Lisa of VR. Like the Apple Lisa was not a successful device. The Apple Lisa barely sold, but it And it
0: came was. out in 1983, say, it took a decade for that type of a thing to really be mainstream. Exactly. But it was the start of it. Yeah. But it was the start of it, yeah. And so I think, I, I remember
1: seeing like a tweet or something of uh, a Valve employee saying that like, at when Apple released the, the keynote and whatnot, everybody at Valve was grinning. Mm-hmm. Why is everybody at Valve grinning? Well, everybody at Valve is grinning because Apple just took a market that was really clamped down by people trying to compete with Meta who can afford to throw things around at very, with very slim margins to a company that's definitely making margins on this thing that's really expensive, like wildly expensive to produce. Um, So what does that mean? I think so. if I'm going to go into pure speculation, uh, tinfoil hat land, uh, I would be like, okay, that means that Valve feels like they've got space, they've got breathing room to make something and release something at a price point that means that they can make money and it can still be really awesome. If Valve comes out with something that gets even anywhere close to Apple Vision Pro for like $2,500, that's compelling to me personally. Because I, because I have a gaming PC, I, I could bet pretty strongly that whatever Deckard turns out to be, I can put a wire to my gaming PC, get a lot more gaming performance being piped into this display, right? It's going to be a little bit more. Uh, I could maybe use that for work, right? I could be, I, you know, I, I work in Unreal Engine Five on a daily basis. If I can pipe the screen in front of my face into a much bigger, uh, you know, bigger aspect ratio, or, or it can be more flexible then that VR headset might be really awesome for a, a whole bunch of different purposes. Uh, and, and and you we end up in a situation where, like, was it Windows 3 kind of sucked, but it had a GUI, right? Mm-hmm. And that kicked off a, a new, like, Windows took over the universe for a time. Um, we, we could end up in a simpler situation where because of foundational steps being made by behemoths, we end up with a burgeoning ecosystem of smaller or or more open uh, VR systems, and having a really big having a big swath of a of a VR market, I think, is really it's going to be really interesting to see what else fits in in the middle.
0: Well, yeah, and you know, by the time I think we I, I would make the claim, my co-host um, Broken Silicon Dan also has that we've kind of figured out rasterization. Like we're there, we have enough performance. We talked about it earlier. Can we please just make this cheaper? Uh, And I feel like we'll kind of get there with ray tracing in five to 10 years. After that, we're kind of done. I don't know. I think we'll have super strong CPUs. So I think it's interesting to also think about like what you're talking about. Like, yeah, Apple VR is really expensive, but it does what it needs to do. And it does it. And in 10 years, once we've maxed out pretty much everything else we want to do with these graphics cards, maybe they'll use less energy and can fit into a VR device for a reasonable price. Yeah. Finally. And that will probably line up perfectly with when that's going to happen. I would say.
1: Absolutely. And at the same time, like if, if VR, like there's a solid chance that VR headsets don't actually hit the mainstream and it's just a niche device forever. I'm happy with that world. Uh, (laughs) I just like to see it exist. Um, like I, I would be surprised if they become as prevalent as phones and to cycle back very fully. If in you order for to them them as, as prevalent as, as phones, glasses, yeah, maybe like this. Like they need to be horn-rimmed, chunky glasses, and not much bigger in order for people to like, or even just headphones,
0: uh, or or like, yeah, like headphones that like hologram something in front if of your this. face. For, <laughs> yeah, if we're getting really <laughs> futuristic, I mean, yeah. who's to say what we could do in thirty years? I don't know. Totally. But. And then maybe yeah. you could use that for all different types of stuff. Maybe it could. Hey, look at this. Well, maybe I, I'm guessing Twitter won't be around anymore by then. But <laughs> you know, whatever repla- crazy prediction. But whatever replaces it, you could say, "Well, I see this. You press it, doesn't project it in front of you, it projects it on a wall, and you can show someone something." Yeah, I, I'd say that's probably the form factor that would really make it mainstream because I don't want stuff on my head. But if you can make it so it's not really, I'll have a Bluetooth headset that should, I'll do that. If it's yeah. that, yeah. If it's that heavy, I'm, I'm willing to be on board. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think there's there's a very long
0: road to that level of, of device, but... But it feels like you can see the road now, because of that. You Apple. can see, you the, see road. the road.
1: You see the road, and, and I th- not only can you see the road, but the intermediate steps to it are going to be really cool.
0: Like, and just- they don't feel hypothetical anymore. It feels like, oh, I mean, we can build this house. It's just going to take a decade, you know?
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So just, you start miniaturizing, and if we're lucky and... If we're lucky, that that drive of miniaturization is going to benefit everybody, right? Like that's like graphics cards, and the, the 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 drive to make them better in the gaming market pushed forward. Like you know, it made cryptocurrency possible. Mm. It made AI possible. uh Without those, things, like it's it's not like it's not just gaming, right?
0: You needed three D performance oh, yeah. for lots
1: of other things, but gaming was a big reason that it, it, ma- it makes it possible
0: scale. now. That a college student can render pretty good special effects in his short film, yeah, right? yeah He doesn't have it doesn't have to all be conceptual. He's like, I can only show it for a minute, but I can show a CGI monster in my right. indie movie, and it doesn't look like ass. I mean, it doesn't right. look like a Muppet or like some insane gorilla suit person, right? And you
1: know, back in the day, you know, a frame of Toy Story took minutes. Then, yeah, like like. <laughs> we've come a really long way and I think we're, to, we're we have a long way still to go. It's just going to be, it's going to start looking different.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that's actually a, a fun conversation to end this podcast on. I want to uh, say, you know, if we didn't get to your question, uh, you know, but this, we went over two hours and I think it flowed really well. And there I'm sure Taylor will come on again. There will be other developers save the, or just ask, you know, throw them into the reader mailbags and we'll just get to them in a die shrink or something. But um I thought this was really good and I wanna thank you for coming on and please plug whatever you wanna plug, you know.
1: Well thanks, Tom. It's, I love coming on here. It's really good to have these kinds of conversations. Uh, I'll plug the project that I plugged last time. Two years ago, I was working on a note writing program. I'm still working on that note writing program, completely unrelated to other things that happen in my day-to-day job. That thing is called Tangent Notes, tangentnotes.com.
0: Writing it down. I'll put that in the description <laughs> as well.
1: Yeah. I, it's just been a, a really cool side project to uh, make my own thinking space. I like to think of it as my integrated thinking environment in the same way that I have an integrated development environment for writing code.
0: Uh, yeah, just being able to separate that and, like, kind of like, I'm sure flex your muscles that you've learned professionally, but flex them on stuff that isn't work is probably possible. really fun. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. You know, I'm doing stuff with
1: like a web technology, doing it. It's, like, it's, a, it's an Electron app. It uses a completely different web stack, uh, which is nice because I am. It's very fast. You can get a lot of stuff
0: done really quick in TypeScript. (laughs) And what is Tangent Notes, though, just so people know?
1: Yeah, so Tangent Notes is, uh, if you've heard of Obsidian, you're my target demographic. Uh, (laughs) That's a small section of people. But so the core thing is it it works on uh, plain text notes that are sort of like Markdown-ish, Markdown with a couple of tweaks. And the idea behind it is that You don't want your notes to be too complicated, but you want a lot of ergonomics around making them look nice and making it easy to connect your notes to different notes uh, so that you can flow through your thoughts in a really uh, easy way. And you're not distracted by where things are or uh, trying to look at lots of different things at once. And you don't have to worry about, oh, where was that thing I was just thinking about? Uh, You can just sort of explore your thoughts, both the thoughts you're writing right now and the thoughts you've had previously.
0: Oh, I see what you're talking about. I have seen this before. Yeah, this is, I mean, I, I'll have a link in the description. I mean, it, it's cool to see it, you know, two years later, the progress being made.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I hope I hope a couple people uh, check it out. Uh, I got a couple people who checked it out from last time. So, hey,
0: very cool. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for submitting your reader mails, for listening. Remember, subscribe to Moore's Law is on YouTube. Bring the bell button. Subscribe to Broken Silicon, your podcast app. Of choice. Oh, yeah. I've got to remove uh, Stitcher from the oh, links. because yeah. Now, Stitcher doesn't exist anymore. Too bad. God, things <laughs> keep changing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so but so, give us a review. If you gave us a review on Stitcher, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts now because Stitcher's <laughs> dead. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's a Patreon. Get this early ad and ad free. You can ask us questions. You can't do this on our patrons. And thank you, everybody, for watching and listening and have a good week. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. However, it's not just me. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan audio editing by Gerard Cortez renders being done by the industrial designer Jean-Philippe Clermont and special assistance is also provided by Carmen Cry and Carrie Sugata as well find all of our information at www.mooreslawisdead.com on the about slash support page in the event you do want to hire me for consulting work hire Gerard for audio work hire Jean-Philippe for industrial design work or you're interested in working with Carbon Cry or Carrie Sugata as well you can also find our long-term sponsors on that page if you want to Show them some love for putting food on our tables. Or you can also mail us some love. You can send letters or hardware donations to the following address: Moore's Law's Dead, P.O. Box 60632, in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. Although, to be honest, the best way to show Moore's Law's Dead some love is to support us on Patreon. Patrons are what makes Moore's Law's Dead content truly possible every month and really every day depending on who you're talking about me gerard dan and john philippe are working tirelessly to provide a steady stream of content that we could not keep doing unless we knew the work was possible without being reliant on sponsors dictating every little thing we put out don't get us wrong we love our sponsors but we love directly working for you our fans much more. If you have any extra money, even a couple free dollars a month, consider supporting us directly on Patreon. Those couple of monthly dollars will get you access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to ask guest questions, and of course, access to the Morris Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who I am sure would love to meet you. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to early ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon. The ability to ask questions in all Broken Silicon episodes and loose ends live streams ahead of the recording and the entire back catalog of Moore's Law Z Dead podcasts. In addition to having thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts, depending on the tier with other perks available as well. And Hey, if you cannot afford to support us directly every month, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family and on social media and websites like Reddit, and give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app of choice. All of this does really help us so much, but like I said, this podcast would not be possible without it. The patrons directly providing predictable and reliable support every month. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher supported levels. Brad Medlin, Drita Foles, Z Jits, Daniel D, Aaron Close, Jan Rano, Daniel Hyde, Brian Regelman, Sam Miller, MJB1, Deke, JZ Ziggy, SNES Chalmers, Jim Ferriera, Andrew S., Falco Malev, General Drips, Jensen Wang, Nathan Mose, Eric Jackson, Sarcastro, Evan Dingle, Greg Wonchek, Chris Rich, Nicholas Buckner, Benjamin Cannon, Jonathan, Jesse Jess 3 3S Boy08, Halbuma, Blake, Hard4 Room.com, Franco Frederic. Shredberg, Doctor Forbin, Jake twenty three, Jake Martins, Zlicky, Ricky Tan, Christopher A. Butler, Stephen Hart, Meat and Pork Stew, Tim Robb, Ian Clifford, Travis Gooding, Nanian, Sammy Molass, Deepest Learners, Mads, Zuzu Taylor, Stephen Coates, Michael McGee, Greg, Patrick Gro, Stefan, Jordan Simkovic, Amy Will Chief, Win Tommy, Mark Mitchell, Julian Leaked, I Should, Mark Raidmaker, The Boss, Haas, James Anderson, Cole Addict, Judson N. Cameron, Rosie Sazer, Henry Zhang, Michelle Pell, D31337 Antics, Roger Davies, Cameron, Exopuma, Crisantine, Meyer Tech Rance, Reginald Ari, Teak Autumn, Jackson Miller, Gregory Sacker, Neith Rezink, The Eternal Dreamers, JSMMH, Gaiman Since Reagan, Jeff Sedler, AWS Danny, Loophole35, Winstar, James I Raider, Corey Leonard, Little Germany, Shea, Milton, Pulse Media, Dave Schultz, MacDaffey, Stephen Dick, Chuck Glidden, Brett Jones, Austin Haggerty, Justin Bussell, i Seven Eleven Seven Hundred k Joe Put, Hardland, Slush 2 Jason Angima, Joseph Kelly, Samuel Park, Keith Moore, Him Sagung, Tales2299, Brian Wright, John, Sisyphos, Earth Taurus, The Forbidden Juice, Fenty C Z, Kiko Sado, Toka, RB Racer, Me Valverga, AC, Colin to Lord Starstream, Michael Cozy, Dr. J Mad, Alex Verga, 3D, John Swin, Roden B.C. Terminal Junkie Brian Wright Jed Baldwin Jonah Martina Keekum Elber Gun, Solarized 80 Christopher Ricks Jamie Whitworth and of course thank you to Sahara for the music